Hi, everybody. Welcome to Stress-Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, uh, live on Twitch and Ustream. Uh, sorry, Ustream. Those were the bad old days. Uh, Twitch and YouTube. Um, you know, I'd like, I'd, I really would like to have it. Uh, you know, engineer would be just really, really nice. Honestly, I'm really tired of just having to do all this and screw it up every single time because there's just, you know, it's just a little nuts. Uh, we have a kind of a systemic uh, problem we're going to have to solve here. And it looks like the Twitch stream is getting kind of choppy. Uh, and here's our problem. Um, the uh, Stress for Lounge has been on Ustream and then on Twitch for the longest time. And now we're trying to do it on uh, YouTube as well, which is important because we get in, we're getting three times the number of people watching on YouTube. Uh, but we are... Um, since the beginning of the Stratosphere Lounge, we've had a, a, a number of musical walk-ins. And, um, and the uh, pre-roll for the show always consists of uh, uh, I Know a Place by Petula Clark. And I really don't want to lose that. But we learned from um, our, our Stratosphere Studio show on Monday that if we do that, then YouTube will ding the um the live show so one possibility is to um is to do kind of what we did today which is to stream it the the pre-roll live to uh, uh to twitch then shut it down and start it again and so on um and uh, thank you for the kind words i certainly could use them uh today uh and that may or may not work but they will not um, let me do music on YouTube. So somebody's saying, yeah, should we move from Twitch to YouTube? It'd certainly make things easier, but um, I uh, I don't um, I don't know exactly how to solve this problem. Uh, one thing we could uh, I, the the only thing I can think of right now is to do essentially what we tried to do today, which is why a little rocky beginning here again, and that is. We start the stream and we stream to um, Twitch. And then uh, when it's time to start the actual show on YouTube, then we're just going to have to stop the stream because I don't think I can just turn YouTube on. I'll experiment with that and add it to the stream. I think you have to make that decision before you go. But in any event, um, I sure don't want to lose the, uh, um, the pre-roll. Uh, and I especially don't want to lose Petula because that is just kind of a, you know, it's a thing. Now, Miriam Bertram says I could stream it to Rumble. Yeah, I absolutely could, Miriam. I could just stream it to Twitch like we have been for the last 200 episodes. But the, the problem is, is that we have 103 users on YouTube right now. We got 53 on Twitch and the number on YouTube will increase. We've only been live for five minutes. So it's, um, it's going to be tough to... Uh, to figure this out is because YouTubers, YouTube is just, I don't know, uh, uh, Rooster uh, on the YouTube stream uh, said, are you going to do any more firewalls or shows like that? I really enjoyed those. I kind of enjoyed it too. Um, the, uh, what now? Check out YouTube content ID. Okay. There are ways around it. Okay. I will write that down because that sounds like it could be cool. Um, but 
we have been um, regarding the the firewalls and stuff like that. I've been uh, talking about this uh, uh, last time and uh, and um, and I continue to, to struggle with it. This uh, this uh, the media world is changing, and um, all of the uh, the protocols are changing. Now, put aside all of the artificial stuff that's done to suppress the conservative message and all the algorithms and stuff. The fact is, is that the the style is changing, and and I look at the people out there whose audiences are are huge and growing, and uh, and they're not really. Um, doing the same kind of stuff. Uh, the attendance, the, the viewership for firewalls has just steadily gone down over time. Um, and uh, I've done, you know, when you throw in the afterburners, I've done 300 or 400 of these things. And I'm really beginning to wonder how you how you say the same stuff again. So I'm in the middle of a of a mid-YouTube crisis uh, thing here where I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out uh, something new. Um, I know that, uh, yeah, the ones that were on PJTV are all gone, and that's kind of a shame. Um, I was able to keep uh, the best of them on a drive here, and I certainly think I could re-release them, but it seemed to me that re-releasing your old Golden Age content is kind of like, you know, it's like the newest Rolling Stones tour where they're going to play everything is just going to be, you know, Satisfaction and Painted Black, and they're going to add one new song that they recorded, you know, seven years ago and didn't sell and all that stuff. So um, I've got um, I've got to figure it out. Now, somebody's talking about the Nord Stream. I have no idea what Nord Stream is yet. Thank you for the kind words uh, there, Dave, and everybody else, and uh, Whittleton especially. Um, so it's a transitional period now, and... Uh, and I'm basically trying to look at a whole new map. So right now, I've got uh, a, a, a lot of stuff that's going on simultaneously. And the, the one that's becoming the most pressing is I have another um, uh, series to deliver to uh, Daily Wire, another history series. Um, make sure this is recording like it says it's recording. Just for giggles, um, I'm just going to do a backup here just in case. That shouldn't affect the stream because it won't be streaming. Um, hang on. I just think this is probably wise. Uh, yeah. All right. So I'm just going to, like I said, I'm just going to do a kind of a backup uh, just in case the uh, other thing's not recording the way it's supposed to be recording. So you can start there, and now I can forget about you. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the so the short form is that I have, uh, it's not that I, I, I have to keep doing these things for Daily Wire because we don't have enough memberships to keep this thing in the black. It's, it's just that simple. And so uh, every year or so, I've got to go through... Um, some process one way or another to inject new cash into the system and and uh, usually it's the the daily wire stuff so um, it's a it's it's tough because it splits uh, focus quite a bit it's um, uh, it's 
it's good stuff, and um, and I enjoy doing it, and I really love working with the Daily Wire guys. But um, now, I mean, for the last four weeks, I've just been like deep into research and notes and stuff, and now it's time for me to start cranking these shows out, and uh, and it's been a while since I've done it moving back to America, and it's just, you know, I don't know. I actually had an idea I liked a lot um, uh, for the moving back to America about a guy who wants to do return a defective product uh, and I'm uh, giving that some some attention but um, and I'm just getting pulled in you know I'm just getting pulled in so many directions I'm just getting pulled apart uh, so anyway uh, this is the world we live in it's cha it's changing a lot and um, uh, and people are now asking about the super chats and stuff and to be perfectly honest with you uh, I've, I've had a lot of people ask about those it'd be it'd be good to do and 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 great uh but right now uh at this minute i am um pretty much overwhelmed here with the tech stuff and and uh streaming to two different plan uh channels at the same time trying to keep up on comments on both of those and then the you know the, the facebook comments so i'm just gonna have to bring this in uh one at a time um so uh, there's that and the other problem by the way about um about the the, the con consecutive stream to youtube which is now 132 viewers as opposed to 62 is that um is that when i had the the pre-roll uh i could start the show a little bit later um sometimes it's tough for me to get back from home here i usually go home take a nap after uh, shoot the stuff in the daytime on thursday and uh, as long as there's pre-roll, then people know I'm coming and I'm here. But uh, if we if we live stream to YouTube, which is look, it's important. Uh, it's probably something I should have been doing a long time ago. Then um, then that you know becomes becomes another problem. So you know I don't know what to say. The reason I said this because Beaker said he looks like he made it here on time. We started at seven or eight after. I would say at least maybe a little later than that. Then uh, you know, we started about twelve after. Um, so anyway, there's all this stuff in the air and all this other stuff uh, that would be uh, nice to have figured out and sorted out and uh, and um, super chats and all of this stuff. I just I just can't. Uh, I've had this uh, this feeling for a while, and I got it very strongly when I was trying to um, uh, trying to learn uh, Blender uh, because I need to texture some of these objects for the for the colonies and stuff, and and I was starting to go looking at some of these tutorials for Blender and stuff, and it's actually really pretty simple. Uh, uh, Capital Geek, his first time chat on Twitch says Bill should do something like the old Uncle Jay explains the news kind of thing. Yeah, I got an idea about that too. Um, anyway, I was, uh, you know, there was some, some new stuff that I had to learn and um, and I just started looking at the stuff and I got this, you know, disc full error. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It really, that's what it was like. It's like, I cannot... Uh, I cannot load anything else without deleting some stuff. And I haven't had a chance to delete anything or, or, or you know, defrag the drive in a long time. So I am been, um, I've been getting less and less efficient. And, uh, and I think the only real cure for that is to, you know, 
take some time off and, and stuff, but I can't feel like I can do that either, especially now since I have this uh, Daily Wire show to deliver, which is taking up a lot of my um, uh, brain space. So, you know, that's where we are. Um, and uh, that's uh, that's that. Now, um, I, I keep thinking, oh, live chat, uh, super chats and stuff, and I realized, I thought, I think, oh, I can't do that because the new channel doesn't have subscribers, a thousand subscribers yet, but I'm not streaming to that. I'm streaming to uh, the little channel, so I can do it. Honestly, my main problem with the um, with the uh, the super chat is that um, is that I'm just worried that I'm going to miss them. I mean, I watched, um, first time I saw Super Chat was on um, on Doomcock's live show and stuff, and and I saw these things there, and I thought, how does he how does he cover all of these things? Um, I don't know if, uh, well, I mean, Rob Ross says, Bill, you're overthinking it, turn on the Super Chats, make money, don't waste your time on Twitch, focus on answering Super Chats. That sounds like a damn good idea, to be honest with you. That's just a really, really clean sounding idea um so uh we'll see um uh, some summer day says bill do you like doing the tech or writing the stories i've got uh, some sponsors and hire i get some sponsors and hire some techies we'll get some sponsors and stuff is 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 grand and hiring techies is grand but like i said the reason i'm i'm doing these uh Daily Wire shows and have been doing them since the Apollo 11 series is because we don't have enough members for this thing to be uh, um, sustainable, if you'll pardon that filthy word. Uh, and it, it's just that simple. So this is this is where I am. Uh, and there's not much I can do about it. So yeah, it'd be lovely to have a marketing department and engineers and technicians and all that stuff, but it gets a point where you're so, uh, you're just kind of stuck in the hamster wheel and you just can't get off of it. Uh, so that's sometimes what things feel like here. Um, I can open a separate window for super chats. That's great to know. I just don't know how to do it. And, and right now I'm, uh, I'm just at the pretty much the limit trying to keep track of two chat streams now plus the BillWhittle.com questions, plus the uh, Facebook questions when I can get to them and, you know, in the middle of something and somebody says, what about a question on Facebook? And I feel like I have to go check it on Facebook. And so anyway, and I'm tired of complaining. I'm sick of complaining and crying about things. Just trying to uh, man up and do everything I can here. So we'll see. Um, so uh, I do, let, Rob says, uh, Super Chat's the most profitable uh, avenue for creators in all of the interwebs. I... Um, I can do that. Uh, so maybe I should just give that a try. Now, I, I think I think I heard on the way in, um, see, I never listened to Hannity or, 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 or Ben or, or Mike Knowles or any of those guys, uh, mostly because I guess I'm just so saturated in this stuff on a daily basis that um, I would like to get away from it. I was coming in uh, tonight and I was listening to Critical Drinker doing one of his live shows, and uh, and he, had, I think he made an offhanded reference to doing just a super chat show. Um, so uh, you know, there's that. And and not to harp on this point, but Rodzilla says you need to promote yourself more. I'm I I know, 
I know. I just don't have the time or the resources to do it. And I and 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 so I'm stuck here, right? I'm just I'm just stuck here. I'm 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 just doing everything I can and I have all these great suggestions of things that have to get done and I know they have to get done and I know they're not actually even hard to do. It's just the just we're at capacity and the drive is full. And um and that's all there is to it. So um something's gotta give and something's gotta change and um and I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to do that. So uh, anyway, enough about the uh, the whinging for the day. I am going to go right to um, uh, I'm going to go right to questions today. I've been doing an awful lot of live stuff. Um, the, the the last uh, Stratosphere lounges, I think the last two have been over four hours. I think the one before that was three and a half. And we've had the uh, you know the Monday night show, and we've had the um, the live stream and stuff, so I'm getting, uh, I'm getting um, saturated. So what I would like to do tonight is I'd like to just try and knock off all the uh, BillWiddle.com questions, get to as many of the Facebook questions as we can, and uh, kind of call this one as early as I possibly can today. So I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm just going to jump right into it here. Um, and you know, like I say, it's I'm I'm fully aware of the fact that, that, that this is there's a much better and more efficient way to do all of this. I just don't know how to get there from here. And and therein lies a, a conundrum, and thereupon hangs a tail. So anyway, member forum. We'll see what we got. And summer day again is the kindness of you people and the tolerance is, never ceases to amaze me. We constantly get offers to help and work on all these other things. But having been uh, in this business long enough and having had the contrast of working at Daily Wire, by the way, you know, when I when I would do uh, Apollo at, at Daily Wire, I mean, or even uh, we ended up shooting America's Forgotten Heroes, but uh, Jeremy didn't like the, the look of the set very much, and I didn't think so either. Uh, so on that thing, you know, you've just got, walk in there and there's a crew of 20 and um when there's a, a crew of 20 and a makeup person and two sound engineers and you got three guys in the booth and and uh you know assistant directors and all that stuff uh it makes life a lot easier for the guy who's got to do the talking uh, so anyway here we go uh, stress free launch questions and more and plus the air conditioning is still not working in here and that's not helping me any I've got an anime haircut. Yeah, uh, I guess I do. Um, all right, so we're going to BillWiddle.com. We're going to get the uh, get a look at these things here. Excuse me while I uh, I used to, you know, I remember back when you could say, "Excuse me while I get a drink of water," but uh, those days are long gone. Now I have to rehydrate. And uh, it's got something to do with this thing I'm working on. I'll tell you a little bit about it. A lot of times when I tell people about it, when I talk about these, I've got the questions teed up here. But when I get uh, a chance to talk about things I'm, I'm kind of working on in my head, it actually helps me a lot in terms of delivering them because uh, when you tell us, if you're about to, if you're about to go on stage and tell a story or something like that in front of a big audience and you and you tell some 
close friends about it. It's it's like a rehearsal, and it's more than a rehearsal because you realize, oh, this part's missing, or maybe I've said this three times. So the short form of the thing I'm working on next uh, is, um, and it's gonna, I'll just do it as a moving back to America, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this one uh, as a, it's gonna be a, a performance. And those of you who were uh, terrified of hearing that sound after the Dias for Dungeon thing, I don't have to be a Shakespearean um, uh, swearing, uh, you know, fictional character. I can just act this one out. And so the whole idea is that I would be talking to the camera, and uh, and it would be a it would be a one way discussion between myself and. Uh, a guy at a customer service store or something like, you know, Best Buy or Fry's or something. And the whole thing would be that, um, was that I, I, the title of the thing would be, uh, it's a long title for a moving back to America. Um, uh, I wish to return this defective product or something very close to that. So the whole thing is basically about me going into a store with this, with this box and um, and trying to get some money back, and uh, and I say I'd like to return this defective uh, item, please. And and again, it would be like the master, the master, master, master of this was Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart, I don't know if he invented this particular form of comedy, but he certainly perfected it. So uh, if you know anything about Bob Newhart, you, what Bob Newhart does is he has conversations. And you never hear the other half of the conversation. And the genius of Bob Newhart is his response to questions that you never hear. That's it's it's when you the more I think about it, the the more impressed I am about it. But that's basically the style. And um, <laughs> Dave Wellman uh, for the win. And I think it would go a little something like this so basically I, I you know I show up and say hi I, I, yeah I, I was uh, like to see about um, getting a refund please uh, because um, yeah it's this 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 thing's just it's not working and I get into a you know a bit of a discussion back and forth and, and I know be my guest absolutely take a look yeah I know but look just because it makes just because it makes a whirring sound and things move doesn't mean it's working it's not working it's not what you advertise. It's not what I expected. It's certainly not what I paid for. And I just, I would like, I'd like a refund, please. <laughs> well, where, where would you, you know, where would you like me to start? I mean, I mean, just, just look at, just look at it from the, just look at the outside of this thing. I was told, the advertising said that this thing was made out of uh, solid steel, made in America, you know, and look, what, look at this. This is plastic. What does this say? Can you read? What does that say? Yes, it's made in China. This is this is not the product that you advertised to me, and this is not the product I bought or I wanted. So I would like to return it, please, for a refund. Uh, and it goes on and on and on. And and I have to. The thing I'm working on now is the is the beats. It can't just be this one thing. You got to have a couple little things in there, you know. But basically. You know what I'm saying? Look, I'm sorry. It's not that you may be under new management. That's not my problem. 
right? That's not my problem. We have a contract. We have an agreement. I agreed to buy this product, and you sold it to me based on these promises. And none of the stuff that this thing does meets those promises. So I want this. Uh, so I want this. So I want this money back. And somewhere in here, you certainly can't lead with it, but you can't hold it off to the end either. Somewhere in here, very casually, what you what you realize is that the thing I'm trying to return is uh, is the future. Is the future that I was sold. This is not the future I was sold. Yes, definitely. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, it does communicate, uh, allow me to communicate with other people. But you know, and it's and and yes, it is kind of a video phone, and I and I did, you know, I did buy a future with a video phone in it. But I didn't buy a future in the video phone where the video phone is watching me and recording me all the time. That's not what video phones were to me when I bought this thing. You know, this is, this is less than it's supposed to be and it's more than it's supposed to be and and this and dave woman beat me to a joke no I, he said i don't want a coupon for a future purpose my line was no i don't want store credit it's toxic i want nothing to do with this future this is not something i want and it's not something i bought it's not something i was promised i was promised something that was fast and clean and shiny and 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 high performance and Yes, it's a future. I, it is. Yes, it's a future. Yes, you're right. Fine. Okay, but if I pay for a if I pay for a Corvette and I walk down there and you sell me and you hand me a Prius, they're both cars. But that's not what I bought, and that's not what I wanted, and so on. So I don't want store credit, and I don't want uh uh you know um, and no, I don't want a new one. They're getting worse every year. Every single year that goes by, this thing gets worse and worse and worse. Look, I bought this thing back in the '60s. I want the I want the solid steel, made in America, nuclear powered, clean, cool, fast, shiny, positive, adventurous future that I was promised. Not this cheap, plastic, intrusive, invasive, foul-smelling, loud, annoying, intrusive, controlling piece of crap that you're offering me. I'm done. I want my money back. Something along those lines. Um, so uh, for this to work, I have to have, it, it can't just be ad-libbed. I have to have a series of, you know, points. I got to have some points. But I think it's a fun idea. Uh, with any luck, I might be able to shoot it tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Dave Wellman, that's a great line too. Dave's on Dave's on a roll here. And a job application, You want you want me to work here? Yeah. It's not my fault. Look, you may be under new management, but that's not my problem, right? That's not my problem. That's your problem. If this new management is delivering this stuff, I don't, I don't care. I don't even care. I don't even care about that. I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you if talk about the features. I don't care. It's not what I bought, and I want my money back, and I want my money back now. No, I don't want to speak to the manager. I don't want to speak to the manager. I just want my money back. And talking to the manager is not going to be any different than talking to you. I don't need to speak to the manager. Speaking to the manager is just going to be a repeat of me having to say everything to that person that I'm saying to you now, and I just want an answer. Can I get my money back? Yes or no? Okay, no. So you're not, so you're not standing by this this future, this 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 product that you sold us here. You're not. You're not going to stand by this product. You don't have enough confidence in this product to, to say that this is a minimal viable future. Nope. Okay. All right. That's fine.
that's okay. That's fine. No, 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 no. I, I get it. Okay. I just basically invested my whole life in this thing. And I guess I'll just go home now and, um, and I'll do what everybody else I see in line behind me here and in front of me here, because it took me two and a half hours to get to the front of this line. I'm going to do what they did and what these people behind me are going to do. And that is, I'm just going to go and I'm going to, and I'm just going to go home and I'm going to sit there without a future. If you, if you, if you're not going to deliver the future and if you're going to, if you're going to tell me that this thing is the future that I bought, fine, you can have it back. I don't even need my money back. You just keep the damn thing. I don't need a future. All right. I'll just sit there and I'll just sit there like everybody else. And I'll, and I'll, um, I'll just spend more time with the past, which is well-constructed, well-made. Really compared to this thing, it's a work of art, something along those lines. You get the idea. Um, so anyway, uh, for that to work, the idea, I think, is clever. Uh, but for it to work, it can't just be... I mean, those beats have to be really sharp. The, the, the response has to be really clever. And, the, and, the, and, and it's got to be clear what the questions are, so I have to put a little more uh, work into this thing. But that's what I've been uh, thinking about lately. Anyway, on to the questions here uh, on... Um, BillWhittle.com. Okay, uh, now I do my best to, to solve these uh, questions and get to as many of them as I can here. I just want to I just want to check something. Um, and I mentioned this before, and I as you know, sometimes when things get a little overwhelming, I can get a little snippy, and it's just a character flaw of mine. But uh, just give me one second. I want to check something here. Uh, Just out of curiosity, and the only reason I'm going to this trouble is not to, um, is not to, well, certainly not to piss off or, or or embarrass anybody or make anybody angry. It's just to, um, just so that I can actually, you know, answer some of these questions. So I'm looking at the first question on the uh, on the page here, and it's it's 418 words. Um, a, a tight firewall was two and a half times that, so. I think if we're going to get through the questions and it's and and me not feel guilty about not getting through the questions, I think uh, the, the tighter we make those questions, probably the better off we'll all be, um, because it takes me considerable amount of time just to read these things, let alone try, try and figure them out. Um, so uh, okay, so let me uh, let me start with Martin Archer here. Um, uh, his question is, Marxism equals the opposite of freedom, and Marxists run our country. Think about that. He says, I stole this from an uh, Instagram discussion thread. Uh, well, Martin, um, I do think about that. I think about that all the time. And I've been especially thinking about that uh, in the last two months because the reason I pitched doing the uh, Soviet terror state to Daily Wire was when we got the announcement of about 87,000 armed IRS agents. And I said, boy, that sounds familiar to me. Uh, I knew a, a good deal um, about uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Rob Brass uh, in the YouTube chat, you have just eliminated uh, 60 or 70 percent of my total stress for the evening with that one comment. 
I cannot thank you enough for that. Uh, Rob Rass says, super chat questions would be tight. And that just made my entire day, Rob. Thank you. You know, keep, keeping track of, sounds like keeping track of all of those um, super chat questions is coming up in two different text streams. It sounds like it'd be like really complex and hard to do. Actually, it'd be super easy, barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? So that guy's a genius. That's brilliant stuff. That's the stuff that sells us the stuff I watch. So anyway, thank you very much for that. If you don't know uh, the pitch meeting, uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's got its own channel now called Pitch Meeting. And uh, and pitch meeting, uh, and I'm coming back to this question, pitch meeting uh, is especially uh, precious to me because I've been on, I wouldn't say I've really been on both sides of those, but I have been, um, uh, I, have, I have dealt with people like the Hollywood writer and the Hollywood producer, and he's got... Um, He's got so much, uh, so much stuff going on, you know. So you made up this, this got this whole story, yes, and you come to this giant climax, yes, and you, and, 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 and it, you don't pay it off, and whoops, whoopsie, oops, you know, it, it's just, it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. Anyway, thank you for that. Um, so back to the story I was just saying, answer this question about Marxism. So I knew the Soviet police state history really well. That's why I wanted to do it. And I thought, um, okay, I know how we'll break it down. There have been, really, at first I only thought of four, but there's actually seven different, uh, there have been slightly more than seven leaders of the Soviet police state, but essentially you could boil it down to seven. Um, uh, Felix Dzerzhinsky, Mezhinsky, who was practically invisible, but the actual largest number of murders happened under him. Yagoda, Yezhov, Yezhov is just Yezhov. Yezhov alone is worth doing the series for. Yezhov and the Great Terror, you know, 18 months of Yezhov just boggles the mind. Uh, and then you go from Yezhov to Beria, who's one of the genuine monsters in history. And then after Beria, you get this kind of long, quiet period with Brezhnev. So I decided to go with Yuri Andropov because he was in charge of it for 20 years. And certainly the terror is ramping down, but the oppression stays up. And then the final person uh, in charge of the uh, of the Soviet police state and and the terror state that it maintains was a was a guy named Vladimir Putin. So it seemed like it would be a, a good uh, topic. So, yeah, Martin, I think about uh, Marxism being the opposite of freedom and Marxists running our country every day. And I know where the I know where the end. Um, result of this is, and I know the procedure that that the, the Soviets used and the other socialist collectives issues. I know what the National Socialists in Germany did. I know what the communists in China did. It all started with you have to make a class enemy and you have to appeal to, especially to young violent people uh, and tell them you know, that all of their problems are based on those people. And, uh, and so if we just get rid of those people, then we will be living in paradise. And as an extra bonus, We'll take the stuff from most people. We'll give it to you, and uh, and that's costly because it's not just the fact that you have to kill millions of those people. Once you've killed millions of those people, then you have to find a new no. Uh, you have to find a new those people. Um, so uh, 
this is why these revolutions always end up consuming themselves because eventually you run out of those people. And the thing I think I like most about telling the story of this uh, Soviet uh, police state is again and again from the beginning, I mean, from the beginning with Lenin, you start with, um, you start with the willful, intentional prosecution of people who you know to be innocent for political gains and those people are either arrested or they're executed. And then the people who are calling loudest for the execution of those people find themselves on trial. And then everybody else is calling for you to murder those guys because they now they're terrified. So we want the full measure of punishment on uh, Kamenev and Zinoviev, death, death, death to these traitors. And then everybody that voted to death for those guys, then they find themselves on trial. And then they start crying the blues and begging for forgiveness and just let me work in the Antarctic Stalin and, 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 and my heart is true to you and blah, 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 blah. And, and the only consolation you get for all of this murder is watching the murderers who've been calling so loudly for murder, watching them squirm when it's their turn to go up against the wall. Uh, I forget, I, I've got its source somewhere. It's in a mountain of notes that I've made. But but in the early on in, in this terror state, uh, somebody got a big laugh. Some some poet said, uh, you know, what are you what are you going to do with this new um, uh, you know realistic kind of Soviet art, you know? And the guy said, who's a real artist, he said, oh, I've got two pieces. I'm going to hang one and put the other one up against the wall. That's uh, that's. That's how uh, really smart people deal with um, uh, approaching terror. And the problem is we don't need really smart people. We need really brave people. The whole thing was just a giant coffeehouse discussion. My favorite joke of all of the jokes that I know that came out of the Soviet Union and Marxism is um, this old Babushka uh, uh, shows up at, uh, I think it was, Gorbachev, yeah, it was prob it probably came out during the uh, Brezhnev era. So Babushka shows up at the Kremlin and she says, I demand to see uh, Comrade uh, Brezhnev. Well, you cannot see Comrade Brezhnev. He's a very important man. He's the head of the Communist Party. He doesn't have time for you. She says, I was in the Great Patriotic War and I and I killed 13 German soldiers with a pitchfork and I demand my rights as a as a Soviet citizen. I will, I will not leave this office until I speak to Comrade Brezhnev. So she just basically sits in the hallway and waits and waits and waits. And she waits there all day and she comes back the next day, waits there all day. And finally, after three or four waiting there all days until closing, Brezhnev has heard enough about this person. So he says, all right, send her in. So she goes in there, she says, Comrade Brezhnev, this old, old woman says, I have one question for you only, one question. And he says, yes, Comrade, what, what is your question? And she said, was Marxism designed by politicians or was it designed by scientists? And Brezhnev says, well, it's designed by politicians, of course. And the woman said, I knew it. If it, had been if it had been designed by scientists, they would have tested it out on rats first. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's basically it. Um, that's basically it. Uh, there is, I, I, you know, I don't want to give away Daily Wire stuff, but again, Sometimes it helps me just kind of pick up a little head of steam here for these things. So I had to, I, I started work on the first uh, first script, and um, and I'm just going to paraphrase it because I don't want to give away work that I'm, I'm getting paid for, but I can give you like a thumbnail. Uh, so the first, 
the first words on the first script, the first words of any script, teleplay anyway, uh, screenplay, teleplay, any, any kind of relatively modern entertainment, the first scene is, is called The Hook. And, and as we get into the era of um, streaming video and, and YouTube video, the amount of time you've got to set that hook goes down from about three or four minutes down to about 20 seconds. If you're in a movie theater, you could, especially in the 40s, in your 40s and 50s, if you had people in a movie theater and they went to the movies every week, you could have an introduction lasted 20, 30 minutes before you really put the hook in people. And they had the patience to put up with it. But now, now you got to get that hook in there uh, and fast. So, uh, so my hook basically is um, the first words of every episode have to have a hook in them, and the first words of the first episode have to have the hook in them. And so, again, I'm not going to read it to you, but basically the first words of the first episode are, are words to the effect of, um, you know, modern Moscow is a, is a beautiful city. There's no denying it. Spotlessly clean. The subways, the, the, the metro stations, each one of them is like a museum. It's like an art museum. Moscow has uh, spotlessly clean streets and large numbers of parks, like Central Park. Any major city, any decent city has parks in it. Uh, here's a park. It's uh, 42 miles just directly south of, of the Kremlin as, as the vulture flies. Uh, it may not look like much, but it's an open area park like you'd find in any American city. Only the difference between this park and an American park is that inside this little patch of ground, 44,000 people lie buried. There's 44,000 dead people in that little patch of grass you see over there. If you come over here, we'll take a look at another one that's even smaller. This one only has 16,000 dead people buried in this park in Moscow. But this one has got the celebrities. This is where this person is, and this person is, and this person is. It's not marked, because it's not a graveyard. It's just a park. But they're under the ground there, too, somewhere. Here's a building uh, downtown. These are the Seven Sisters, the kind of ominous-looking Stalin-esque uh, seven buildings that were built during the Stalin period, and they have a kind of a, you know, I'm bigger than you sort of quality. But this building's actually quite lovely. It's called the Lubyanka. Uh, Lubyanka was a, a, a pre-Soviet building. It was an office building, and uh, it stands there today. There's a giant tour store right across the street. Uh, the thing that's interesting about this uh, particular building in Moscow is that nobody knows for sure, but certainly in excess of 100,000 people were murdered in the basement of that building that's standing right there. Murdered in the basement, six at a time. Over here, you can see what looks like just a regular kind of a fenced wall. Walk right past it without giving a second thought. That's Lafordo Prison. That's where they took the people who the Lubyanka couldn't crack. That's where they took the hardcore cases for uh, intensive torture before they were executed. And that kind of thing. So that's the opening. And then the other thing I see in the opening I like very much is... Um, again, words to the effect of... Uh, I've got a real challenge with this particular series. And, um, and in order to overcome this challenge, I, it's not gonna, I'm not going to be drawing on my, um, on my background as a historian. I'm going to be drawing on my background as an astronomer. Because in order to tell the story of the Soviet terror state, you need a background in astronomy. And the reason you need a background in astronomy is that anybody who's any good at teaching astronomy knows how to, through 
use of graphics and language, give you at least a shadow of the scale of things, of just how big things are. And this is the problem we have here. I am going to have to stop again and again and again because if you do nothing but say 30,000 people were executed here, it just goes by. And my job is to constantly remind you what 30,000 people shot is like. This is an astronomical problem. How far away is Alpha Centauri? We'll never really be able to understand it. We don't really have the, um, the ability, but we can get at least an appreciation for how much we can imagine it would be. And that's what we have to do with this thing, you know? I mean, if you came home from work one day, you found out that the, um, that the uh, police had burst into your house and taken your wife and your three children and taken them away and shot them, you could have some echo of, of what that would feel like. Uh, but if I told you that they shot 30 members of your family, extended family, can't imagine that. And if I told you that they shot 30 members of 700,000 extended families in a year, how are you going to process that? How do you process that? You process it by constantly, constantly, constantly coming back to the reality of what that is and not just following along uh, with the man who is responsible ultimately for all of this and his absolutely astute observation, the kind of observation that only one of the greatest mass murderers in history could make, and that is a, a death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. My challenge in this series is to make sure that we never, ever, ever look at these numbers as statistics. Because they're not statistics. They're people. They're actual, real people. They're people like you and me and the people you love. This is what happened to them. This is the story of what happened to them. So let's get started. And that's basically the open. But I, I had the feeling that, you know, because you can show pictures of this place. Uh, see, it's just a, you know, what is it, an acre maybe, half acre, something like that. It's like an American park, except unlike American parks, there are 44,000 people buried in this one little patch of, uh, of grass here inside of, of Moscow. And there's a bunch of other ones, too. It's inconceivable. It's just inconceivable. And, and it's been remarked on so many times that I'm reluctant to even say it because it's such a cliche, but you'd never see anybody walking down the street with a, with a swastika on their t-shirt. You see a lot of college students waving that hammer and sickle. Interesting choice, actually, uh, the hammer and sickle. The Soviet Union picked the hammer and sickle for their flag to represent the workers, which were the hammers, and the sickle, which were the peasants. And uh, what happened was the hammer smashed the sickle into tiny little pieces, and then the sickle cut the head of the hammer off. They're both extremely brutal, painful, primitive, backward murder instruments. That's what a hammer and sickle turned into murder implements, and that's what they were. So anyway, uh, yes, I'm aware that Marxism is the opposite of freedom, Martin, and I'm aware of the fact that uh, we're experiencing that today. So I wanted to do this series.
wanted to do this series because people have no idea. I mean, no idea what happened and what the scale of it was. Uh, it's, it's just... Um, there's a Soviet writer named Varlin Shalomov who wrote uh, Koloma Tales. Everybody's heard of Auschwitz. Everybody's heard of Auschwitz. Anybody with half an education's heard of Auschwitz. Nobody's heard of Koloma. 1.2 million people killed at Auschwitz, just under a million at Koloma. Uh, nobody has heard of Koloma, but they killed a million people there. Uh, and that was just one of 322 camps in the Gulag system, and uh, nobody's, nobody's heard of that either. They started sending prisoners in the very beginning of this in the 20s to, um, to an island, a group of islands uh, up in the north of the Baltic. Took a former monastery there and turned it into a prison. And one way they would kill people, if they wanted to make an impression, is this place had a very high, long set of stairs. Not quite as big as the uh, Odessa staircase, but a, a long, high series of stairs. And they would tie two people to a log, push them down for fun. Um, the, uh, but th this guy's Kolomatils, he survived the camps. He, he survived 1938 in the camps and was in the camps till probably about the 50s. And, and the stories are the thing that are going to save this. Well, when I say save the series, I mean humanize the series. Because the statistics... You could fit a million Earths inside the sun. Well, a million Earths. Uh, it doesn't, you know, seeing the sun and then seeing the Earth gives you a much better idea. And then finding a human example for this gives you an even uh, better idea. I was rereading a chapter earlier today before I came in um, about um, uh, bathhouse day in the gulag. Uh, so you've got these people who are former, I don't even know where to start. I'm not going to do the whole series here, but since it's a question about Marxism, I might as well warm up a little bit. Um, The main reason that they were able to keep the gulag system going as long as it did was that the enforcers were not Soviets and Soviet guards. The enforcers, the people that actually ran the discipline in the camps, were the criminals, murderers and rapists and, and thieves and banditos, thugs. Uh, if you had uh, raped a 12-year-old and given her syphilis on top of it and they sent you to the gulag, you would go for five years, and when you come back, you, you were not an enemy of the people. You were, you were working class. You were a friend of the people. If, on the other hand, you were a music professor who managed to speak German, then you were an enemy of the people, and you were treated far, 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 far worse than murderers and rapists were. As a matter of fact, they put murderers and rapists in among the politicals in order to maintain order and terror. 
because musicians are no match for murderers. And so this whole thing goes on. So you get these emaciated people, and the system is so insane, they would, they would go to work gangs in the mines in Kolyma, and, and these Russian peasants would arrive. These are enormous guys, guys in their 20s, right? Enormously strong men, hugely strong men. They take 30 of these guys to make up a small work party in, in some of these gold mines in Kolyma. And, um, and they'd be all dead in two to three months. Meanwhile, some scrawny, thin little intellectual might last two years, three years. On, on a one in a million chance with the pachinko balls, he might survive the system. And the reason for that is because when they divided up the rations, which generally came to about 800 calories a day on a decent day, they made no provision for your size. The smallest people got the same ration as the largest people did. So the bigger you were, the stronger you were, and the harder you worked, the faster you died. Um, and uh, so they would just send people to dig as much gold or coal as they could before they died. And, and they had an endless supply, so it wasn't like they had to be careful. Um, it just goes on, but but again, it's it's the it's the details that help you appreciate the scale of this thing. So just to give you this story from Kolyma Tales by this incredible Russian writer, uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which doesn't quite have the same immediacy, and and Solzhenitsyn said when he first read uh, Shalomov and and uh, and Kolyma Tales, he felt like he'd known the guy his entire life, uh, but he's talking about. Um, after the worst of the terror, it's now probably about 48, 49, the war's over, and it's easing up a little bit. And he talks about um, bathhouse day. Once every 10 days, three times a month, the system required all of the gulag inmates to go and get a bath and get cleaned up and deloused. And he said... If you are, if you're, if you can't sleep at night, despite the fact that you're exhausted, emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually, if you're simply worn out but you can't sleep at night, because the lice are so thick that they won't let you sleep, you would think that going to the bathhouse would be a source of real joy. You would think that people who are filthy all the time, who sleep in their same clothes, who don't change their underwear or anything ever, you'd think that getting a chance to go to, to, to have a, a bath and disinfectant, you think they'd be looking forward to that. You, you can't imagine, as a human being, being filthy, why you wouldn't want to be clean. He talks about just the sheer pleasure of being clean, coming out of a bath or shower and being clean, especially when you've been really dirty before. And he says, but every single one of us in the camp, all of us, dreaded uh, bathhouse day. We dreaded it. We absolutely feared it and and when it came it was uh, a catastrophe for us every every 10 days they didn't get the day off on bathhouse day so instead of having a chance to drag themselves back up the hill eat their thin soup and then sleep which was the only respite they had uh, from this whole thing and you've got these people who weigh 90 pounds lifting logs and wheelbarrows of, of heavy rocks up the side of hills and stuff that kind of thing he said, all we ever wanted to do was come back, eat, and sleep. And on bathhouse day, we had to come back 
and then we had to go to the bathhouse and we had to bring in extra wood before not while we were working we had to come back then we had to go out and get some extra firewood for the bathhouse we had to do that and then we had to wait and we stand there and there's a lot of detail that that, uh, that i'll get into but basically uh, he said we were all issued one basin of water but we usually didn't uh, have enough water uh, we could have all the ice we wanted to just these giant chunks of of ice there so most guys took ice but by the time they had enough water the water wasn't even hard to begin with so you had a choice of either a m minimal amount of, of warm water or you could melt some ice and have enough water but either way you were cold he was talking about this freezing and and, and and just how cold it was and how some men were undressed some weren't and they all had to turn in their clothes um they had to turn in their clothes to be uh, disinfected. And then at the end of this procedure, uh, uh, a window, a clerk's window would open, and all of the clothes that had been turned in would be shoved out onto the floor. There was no way to get your clothes back. You just found what you what you found. He said that the... That the the constant lie that the that the Soviet Marxist state told themselves was, well, we have to dis we have to disinfest the clothes for we have to treat them for lice you know once every ten days. So what they would do is they'd put them all in all the clothes from these guys are soaking wet and put them into a room that had a, a cast iron stove in it. The idea being, look, if you boil the clothes, you'll kill the lice. The idea being that we'll heat treat these clothes and the heat treatment will kill the lice. Well, the, the clothes that were closest to the stove never got hot enough to kill the lice. And they shielded the clothes that were further behind so that not only did they not clean the lice, but when the people got the clothes back, they were soaking wet and they were freezing. Uh, and they had to put that on. They had to put on freezing underwear too. But he tells a story about uh, grown men who uh, burst into tears. Not one guy, every time these grown men would burst into tears because they had been forced to trade in decently fitting dirty underwear and what they got back out of the door was clean thin underwear and this upset them so much that they that they just break down sobbing uh, because they weren't your clothes wasn't your underwear he talks about the fact that he got a, a just a simple cloth uh, scarf, necklace, not a necklace, a, um, you know, a wrap. It wasn't woolen or anything, it was just cloth. And he was attached to it because it was one of the few things that he actually owned. So he refused to take it off. He refused to take it off. He would take it to the bath, he'd take it to work, he kept it on him for two, three weeks, I think he said. The only time he ever took it off was when he was alone, uh, and he said he took it off once then just to wipe his, just to kind of, you know, wipe his neck. He said there were so many lice on this scarf that once he put it down on the table, it started to move. It just started to, I would say it got up and walked away. It just it just started moving because there were thousands of these bugs in this one thing because he'd never cleaned it because he'd never take it off. Anyway, one day it got so bad he got to um, to a bath. He thought he was alone there. He took his, he took this thing off. He turned to, to, to pick up the water to come back and, and, and think. So he's, he's got the scarf here. He turns on the water. He's going to put this thing in, and by the time he turns back, it's gone. And he cried about that for a month or so, because uh, somebody stole his, uh, 
this cloth scarf that had thousands of lice in it. He said after that was over, after he got up over being so upset about it, he uh, he said he actually got the first decent night's sleep that he's had in the last two weeks, three weeks of trying to protect the scarf. Uh, so uh, these are the things that um, that humanize the thing, you know. He's on a the what they all realized was that hard labor was 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 a death sentence, and so everything, anything, anything that they could do to get out of the hard labor gave them at least a chance at life. The work crews in the mines would go out at nighttime and Kolomo's um, up in the far north, up in Irkutsk or Yakutsk. I think it's Yakutsk. Very far north. And uh, they would send the, the guys out. These guys don't have shoes, mind you. they got rags wrapped around their feet. And let's not forget, okay, these are... Um, talking about musicians, surgeons, uh, writers. These are political prisoners. The criminals never got put through this. So they take out a, um, they take out a, uh, a work crew at nighttime, and they take them out if it was 60 degrees below zero. They, if it got to 70 degrees below zero, then they would say it's too cold to work, but it had to be 70 degrees below zero. And, and he talks about the fact that after you had done this kind of work for two to three weeks or a month, if you managed to survive by getting yourself out of the work details, he said your your hands were like claws. They were like artificial hands. You could not, you couldn't move them. They were, they were locked in the shape of, of the hand position that you would have when you were either shoveling or running a pick. This is your GI Joe hands, basically the old G.I. Joe hands, and you couldn't, you couldn't move them. And he would talk about how if he managed to find light work or find a way to stay in the hospital and stay in the hospital, go to the hospital and stay in the hospital, that after two or three weeks he could get to the point where he could slowly, slowly begin to unbend his fingers on his left hand. He said he would save the right hand for later. There's no point starting with that. And just the miracle of being able to do that after all this time. These guys would be... Um, Anytime, there, there was a lot of cases of self-injury. Uh, talks about one case where four guys basically got together, combined their meager food rations, um, pooled their meager food rations, and it was enough money to bribe the guy who hands out the explosives for the mines to give him just a tiny little, um, you know, like a pre-detonation charge, just a kind of thing that sets off the bigger charge. So they had one of those smuggled it out to the uh, to the gold mines, and he and the four guys all reached out and grabbed this thing together, and they said, "You ready?" He said, "We're ready." Touched it off and blew their fingers off of their hands, all of them. That kept them out of the gold mines and may or may not save their lives. These guys would go to the hospital, and when they were in the hospital, uh, well, he talks about. It. He talks about a story where uh, a guy who nobody he didn't he didn't have any friends nobody had any friends uh, you you couldn't afford to have friends nobody expected uh, any kind of friendship he once did something that that got him two cans of condensed milk which is beyond imagining 
and he sat there in front of everybody and drank them all by himself, and not a single person complained. No, nobody expected that they that he would share it, and nobody gave him any problem for not sharing it because they wouldn't have shared it either. He said he couldn't have. He said every single one of these people were obsessed with watching other people eat. Anybody eating any time if they weren't eating themselves, all they wanted to do was just watch somebody eat. So anyway, one of the things that saved this guy was he was uh, standing next to a relatively kind administrator and um, and a, and a, a guy who had been weak and had recovered in the hospital was starting to get better. And uh, and the next work order detail came up and his name got called out. So he got on the truck and went to the gold mines and that was the end of him. He, whoever this guy was died in the Coloma gold mines along with 999,999 other people. And the surgeon who he'd been working with, who was a kind man, said, "You know, it's just it's just such a shame. He's just such an idiot. You know, if he if he had just had appendicitis, we could have saved him." And it took him a while to realize this, what what the guy was actually saying. But when a few weeks later, because it was kind of a hospital stop, it was time for the next uh, work crew in the in the gold mines, and and this guy, the author, his name came up. And being a really, really smart guy, he just immediately doubled over and started groaning. And the doctor, who was known to be a kind guy, said, what's the matter? He says, oh, I have this sharp, sharp pain in my lower right abdomen. He says, okay, um, sounds like an emergency um, report to the infirmary. So uh, they had a couple civilian doctors there and hadn't had a lot of experience. So they put some ether on him and uh, put him to sleep and removed his perfectly healthy appendix. And they had to show it to him, by the way. They were required by law to show it to him. Uh, and uh, so he was in recovery for eight or 10 days. That saved him from that trip. But he said he knew that there were still people in this transit camp, so they kept coming to get more people for the gold mines. So what these, what these recovering patients would do is they would, uh, they would wait till the orderlies had gone and then they'd reach under the beds and they'd rub their hands into the dirt and grime of the floor and then rub this dirt into their wounds as deep as they could get it because the last thing they wanted was to heal that was the last thing they wanted time and time and time again you hear these stories of these guys who had some sort of medical condition or leave and they would do everything they could to remain infected um, uh, so that they so they didn't have to go and die in the coal mines uh, and, you know, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. I think the most memorable story in that book is the simplest one. It tells the story of this guy who was just, just got to the camps and he was so exhausted, so exhausted by working in these gold mines and, 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 and just the, and the no food and, and no sleep and, and, and having to deal with these murderers and, and beatings and, you know, having a guard who gets pissed off at you and knock your teeth in with a rifle but so um so this guy went out and he worked a long long shift and he was getting weaker and weaker and weaker and doing less and less work but he was out there constantly working and he's and the story was he finally came back late that night and um after a number of missed quotas he uh he came back home back to the barracks and uh after a while, a couple guys came in and asked for his name, and he raised his hand, he stood up, and so they took him outside, and he thought maybe they're going to walk him to the infirmary, but they actually took a different turn, and 
And they were walking down this path and went out past the barbed wire, and then he suddenly realized what was going to happen to him. And, and his only thought was how, uh, how angry he was that he'd gone to work that day since it was his last day. He, he didn't mind being shot so much. It just pissed him off that he was getting shot at, uh, getting shot after having gone through another day of this torture. You know, that was his big regret was, I wish if I'd known they were going to shoot me tonight, I would have stayed in bed. So this is, um, this is the end result of this uh, philosophy that you know, they're trying to uh, push on us. And the reason that I've talked in previous shows about how disturbing it is that American kids, Gen Z kids and millennials too, but Gen Z even worse, how, uh, you know, who fought in the Mexican-American War? I don't know. Name three countries other than the U.S. What's a country? Um, I'm not making this up. You can just go look and find them anywhere. Flaccus Talks is a channel that just deals with nothing but this, you know. What's the capital of the United States? The United States has a capital? Yeah, what is it? I don't know. Los Angeles? Yes. You can convince people that uh, stupid, that um, and that uneducated, that this Marxism thing is a good idea, but you can't convince people who read any history, and you certainly can't convince people who lived under it. Uh, John Pershing gives the all-time uh, the the uh, automatic uh, answer, but that wasn't real socialism. And I think this is going to be the close of the series. In fact, th I know this is going to be the close of the series. I'm going to address that question precisely. Um, People say this wasn't real socialism, and those people are wrong. Whether they know they're wrong or not is not relevant. This is real socialism. In fact, it's the only way to get real socialism. This stuff, this this philosophy is so is not only unhuman or inhuman, it's anti-human, and the only way that you can force people into this repulsive, sickening philosophy of intellectuals and coffeehouse uh, 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 narcissists is at the point of a bayonet, and and every time it's been applied, it's resulted in mass murder. And for you to say that every time it's been applied is an example of it having not been done right is something that tells me that no, this is this is the only way. This is the only way to do it. And uh, after all of these 100 million, 200 million dead bodies, maybe it might be time to think about whether it's a good idea or not. You know. So anyway, uh, that's um, that's that. Lenin, you know, Trotsky. These guys were. It was all it was all theory for them. You're a Zenoviate. Well, you know, I'd rather be a Zenoviate than a Trotskyist. Okay. It's all theory. Um, uh, anyway, uh, that's that. Uh, Joe R. Hey, Joe. Hi, Bill. Polls for the midterms are looking better and better for us every day. Yes, I've noticed that, and that certainly takes away some of the dread. It's known that Republicans always poll better after Labor Day as the election gets closer. Looking at all the trends and numbers and everything I observe from state to state, I believe, as I stated last time, that Republicans will win the House by at least 40 to 50 seats, and we win the Senate 53-47, maybe even 54-46. For, for now, ignore polls or 
even betting pools say. Right now, what does Bill Whittle honestly think will happen this November? What honestly is your feeling in your gut? Uh, keep the faith and stay positive. The more you positive vibes you put out in the universe, the force for good will prevail. God bless, Joe. Thank you, Joe, especially for the last part. Uh, when my when when I'm asked what I think is going to happen, and things and then things change, and I change what I think is going to happen, uh, sometimes people say, "Well, just just a month ago you said you thought this. Well, just a month ago that's what that's what the signs indicated. That's what that's what the that's what the that's what the the earth was telling me, you know, when I put my ear to the ground. Um, and so when that changes, my opinion changes. Back in July, uh, end of July, early August, the Roe v. Wade thing happened. The raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago happened. Gas prices went from seven dollars a gallon to five dollars a gallon, and and these enormous Republican Democrat trend gaps in the case of the Senate, they, they crossed. And in the case of the House, they converged dramatically. Since then, they're starting to widen back up again. These are based on betting pools. I have high level of confidence in betting pools for reasons I mentioned before. People have skin in the game and they're, well, that's not to say there's, that these things are accurate, but nevertheless, they are, um, they're indicators. And yes, things are, are starting to, to, to swing back. It, it was, a subject that caused me enormous, uh, I'll just come out and say it, just concerned to the point of despair that people were starting to uh, be less angry because the gas prices that used to be $2.30 a gallon went to $7 a gallon and now they're down to five fifty. Hey, things are getting better. Um, that's minimal psychology. Um, we did a Virtue Signal show today. Uh, this was Zosha, and he was talking about how at uh, college football games you hear everybody shouting FJB and talk about FJB, and honestly, Zoe was setting the thing up for, it took me 35 seconds to completely realize what he was uh, saying when he was saying college kids at football games were shouting FJB. I thought there was a football, was it junior, junior varsity? What, what, what is foot, foot, FJB? FJB is essentially, let's go Brandon. And he said, you know, I thought we're conservatives and, you know, and the vulgarity and stuff, and I said, look, the reason that I think that the reason that college students are, are around the country during football games are shouting FJB, let's go Brandon, is because a football game on a college campus is a selector for normal for normalcy. That anybody who's actually attending the college football game and all of its toxic masculinity, and not to mention all of the sexism and patriarchy with the cheerleaders and all the rest of it, anybody who's on that college campus who is actually at the stadium may not be Republicans or conservatives, but they're fundamentally normal. You don't see any pink-haired uh, social justice warriors at football games. You see them maybe outside protesting football games, but you don't see them inside the stadium. So my contention was that the reason that this is happening inside the football stadium is because this is the only time where these guys on campus, these kids on campus, have a chance to be around normal people and not be um, demonized for their, you know, for their belief system before being sent off to re-education camp. So I think that's it, and and I think that that 
uh, one of the things I mentioned, I hate to give away the shows, and sometimes I just need somebody to talk about it in the Stratosphere Lounge. I said, you know, the thing about um, the thing about millennials and Gen Z that's remarkable and disturbing is is that biologically, when you reach your mid to late teens, biologically, hormonally, genetically, there's something in you that makes you immediately need to get out of the out of home. Right. Something happens in the space of six months or a year at the most where your dad comes, goes from being a great guy to being a, a, a capitalist oppressor, oppressor and a fascist. And, and it's an emotional reaction. And that emotional reaction is designed to get you out of the house. It's, it's called the launch, right? Failure to launch is people that don't separate themselves from their parents. They end up staying you know, at home with mom for, for their entire lives. Failure to launch. All, all mammals have this programmed into them. So we send off kids to college, and I'm one of them, to get the advanced education at the time when we are least capable in our entire lives of actually receiving it. Because everything we do is in rebellion. And the thing that's remarkable to me about uh, Gen Z especially is how unrebellious they are. You would think that just because the fact that all of these teachers were telling them something, you would think natural reaction would be, well, in that case, then I'm going to be as anti-trans, anti socialism is as everything it's just a natural it doesn't matter what the subject is that's a time to be against it um but there's that doesn't seem to be the case except at a football game again where you you, you know you have to pay a ticket to go through a turnstile and 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 show up with the rest of the normal people and have fun um and i think that that the reason for this is because aside from the you know when when you've never been allowed to be alone, right, when you've never been allowed to go out and play or at the very least go out and play with two or three uh, friends and you're out of communication, you know, you're, you're disconnected, you're, you're, you're out there riding your bikes with three or four friends or you're out in the woods or you're, or you're you know, walking home from baseball, whatever, kind of things that we grew up with. We were on our own and we like being on our own and that's why we would get in trouble when we came home late, you know, you'd be home by dinner time or home by dark and we don't want to go home um and when when you have that from an early age you develop a sense of independence and a sense of 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 your own personality and then so you are capable of rebelling but the these last two generations have not only not had that that's been forbidden to them right? you you can't you, you can get i'm not not i'm not joking now you can find yourself arrested or at the very least investigated if you send an eight-year-old to walk to school in California. You find out that you know, some, some Karen pulls over and says, where are you going? I'm just going to school. Are you here by yourself? Yeah, I'm just, I just live with Your parents let you walk to school by yourself? Well, yeah. Child Protective Services, and, or if, if not SWAT, you know, I'm going to show up and, and teach you not to do that anymore. And also, when you have a when you have entire generations that have that have been given the um, participation pro trophy, everybody wins, wins. Uh, everybody participates. Nobody wins. Nobody loses. All of these things go to make up individuals. You know, failure makes you an individual. You learn lessons from failure. If you're never allowed to fail, then you never develop into an adult. And uh, I've been watching a lot of Odin's Men. He's a new new YouTube channel to me. I only discovered him three, four weeks ago. I think he's a former Marine who basically just says, uh, he just watches TikTok videos. And he's actually extremely 
um, kind and 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 extremely reasonable. He's not, you know, oh, he's okay. I'm with you on this. You know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. He's he's great. And I and I watch these these videos and I watch him watching these videos and and he comes back to it again and again and again. He says these are children. These are these are post puberty children. They're children and they will never grow up. It's too late now. You can't, you cannot give them the childhood that they already had taken away from them. Uh, it, did, it had something to do with the My Virtue Signal topic today. There's a group of, uh, it's a Canadian TV documentary. Uh, a group of white women got together. I don't know, eight or nine or ten of them got together and hired um, a black woman to come in and talk to them about their white privilege. And, uh, and this uh, black woman wasn't exactly Sojourner Truth, you know? She was pretty well paid for this, I imagine. And so they, they, they brought this person in to, uh, to enlighten them about their white privilege and how racist they all were and stuff. And, you know, and this one woman in her defense said, I really thought seriously about dating a Hispanic. Well, Hispanics don't count, says the black woman. That must be refreshing for Hispanics to hear. She said, well, I was just thinking about having, you know, I was, I was really actively considering having, you know, children with, with really much darker skin color. And then, you know, look at me, you know, I'm, I was almost there, you know. And, and I said, these people are nuts. They're, 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 they're neurotic. They're, they're clinically neurotic. The, you don't even hear that term applied anymore. In, in the 60s, even before I really, I mean, I'm a kid of the 70s ultimately, really. But in the 60s, everybody was using the term neurotic. Don't be neurotic, don't be hysterical. You know, and, and now, the, look, the definition, the thumbnail definition of, of, a, of a character disorder person is a person who blames everybody else for their problems, and a neurotic blames himself for everybody else's problems. That's what neurosis is, is it's, it's, it's taking on responsibility and guilt for things that you didn't do. It's, it's, it's masochism, self-flagellation. That's why I call this episode The Flagellants. So, Zoe, as usual, had some interesting takes on this and, and said, you know, um, he said, you know, uh, yeah, well, don't, you know, every time you try and deny that white supremacy is there, you're making a mistake. It's white supremacy does exist. It exists for liberals. That's what it's, that's, that's why it's here. That's who, that's who is the author of it. That's who does it. And he's talking about this. And I said, yeah, you know what, man, when you come right down to it, you're absolutely right, as usual. This black woman who they've hired to come in and talk to them about how racist they are, when you get right down to it, she's, she's the help, right? She's the, she's the help. She's the hired help. She's a, a, a person that they've hired to, to do some work around the house. I notice that none of these people in this group who hired this black person to come in and tell them about their white privilege, I noticed that there are no black women in this group. In other words, these white liberals don't have any black friends, real friends. So they go and hire a person to come in to tell them how privileged and awful they are. And they are paying big money to be told how awful they are. If that's not, um, if that's not neurosis, then, then the word has no meaning. They're, they're, they're all neurotic. They're children. They're grown children. And 
And my observation was that the lower you go on the economic scale, the less that this kind of thing matters. You don't see construction people uh, hiring uh, blacks to come in and tell them how racist they are because as you get lower on the economic scale, things actually get much more, um, much more integrated, right? You work in construction, you're working with black people, you're working with Hispanics, you don't treat them as blacks or Hispanics. This guy's either good with drywall or he's not good with drywall, and it's just that simple. And the, the further you go up on the educational and, and, and income scale, you reach a point where that thing starts to diverge, and those people are the people with white privilege, and they are universally Democrats. Because Republicans don't feel that way because Republicans who make money don't feel guilty about making money because Republicans have character. They have a sense of self-respect. I've never known a single Republican millionaire who felt bad or in the slightest way needed to convince everybody else he was a great guy and mitigate the fact that he became a millionaire because those guys worked their tails off and they earned it. So um, all of this stuff to say that I'm glad to see that the polls seem to be heading back in, in that direction. Uh, look, I was really pretty sure that, um, that there was no way that Gavin Newsom was going to survive the recall after what he had done to California, after the lockdowns and after the number of businesses destroyed and the French laundry thing. I thought there's no way this guy's going to survive the recount, and he sailed through it. And he sailed through it because I had grossly underestimated the servility of a significant portion of the uh, population. And most of those people, in fact, from a statistical point of view, all those people live in blue, blue states. In fact, in, they live in blue cities in, in what would otherwise be red state. If you look at it by district, California's a really red state. It's just there's so many people in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego that the state goes blue, but you look at it in terms of territory, in fact, you look at the whole country in terms of territory. It's, the country's a gigantic, red, blood-red, healthy, happy, consistent, fully alive red with little tiny blue stains here and there and there. And that's why they're working on making sure that the, that the red areas don't get to stay red because of the Electoral College. They want the little blue areas to control everything. So, um, so while I was amazed that uh, Newsom won the recall, that's what, six months ago now? Five, six months ago? Uh, when I come to work in this studio every day, three out of four people in this building are continuing to wear masks. There's no requirement for them to wear masks. There's no signs outside that say they need to wear masks. There's no, um, certainly no social pressure on them, at least from normal people, to wear masks. But here in L.A., Four out of five people in this building continue to wear masks. And every day that goes by, I give them sharper looks. And I don't sneer at them. I just give them looks of amazement. Like, are you, are you, are you waiting for Fauci to call you personally? I saw the, the DART impact mission. And, uh, and I watched the people in Mission Control, you know, just erupt with joy. And one of them was wearing a mask. Think about that. One of them. That is a profound statement, Coffee Shinado. I've never heard it. I've never heard it put that succinctly before. That's really profound. In the YouTube uh, comment section, Coffee Shinado said that the pandemic broke a lot of people. That's exactly what it did. It broke them. They weren't like that before. 
Um, but they were susceptible. They'd never been, their servility had never been put to the test before. And the, and the pandemic broke them. And I still see it all the time here. I see it all the time. I see people wearing masks walking down the street outdoors. And I know that, I know that the, 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 the blue face mask is the MAGA hat of the left, but I don't know what to do about it. And I don't, other than just stare at it in amazement like I would if I saw, you know, a, a, a giraffe walking down Ventura Boulevard. That would get my attention in the same way. Like, well, now that's not something you see every day, except it is. It is something you see every day. Uh, the Daily, not Daily Wire, was it, I think it was Babylon B. I think it was Babylon B. I didn't see the video, I just saw a little bit of it with the sound off. Did a bit about Californians moving to Texas and they're still wearing their masks and they're talking about they're gonna be buried in their masks. They don't wanna take any chances, you know? Okay, and then the, the beautiful thing about it is, and of course the Texas guys come over to see if he can lend them a hand, welcome them here, and they don't, oh my God, you know, there's a guy at the door, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he's, he's open carrying and they all just completely freak out. And the Texas guy's response is, not to say you effing idiots or get the hell out of here is his his response is just to put on his cowboy hat and just look at look you know bless their heart takes all kinds i guess that's a person who's sane and these people are not and when you look at i'll tell you one thing that the odin's people thing has really shocked me about it's the 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 quality of the insanity hasn't shocked me and not even the quantity of the insanity has shocked me but what has shocked me is the incredible percentage of the craziest people that are that are actual teachers that really 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 surprise and disturbs me that the most insane people with the most hatred and the most uh agenda Almost all of them are teachers. It's just, it's, okay. All right, you know, these there are, there are mega trends that you can't fight. Public schools are done. They were the wonder of the world, but they're done. And, and, if you, and if you send your kid to one of these schools and they come back hating you, you have no one to blame but yourself. Universities are finished. There's, there's, there's no, why? Why would, you, why would you do this? Why would you spend $200,000 well, 190000 now that I'm paying for your $10,000 refund. Uh, why would you send somebody to college today? We don't live in this second-age second economy anymore. We no longer live in this vertically structured, centralized economy. We live in a gig economy now. This is the information age. This is why I'm confident for the future, because all of this tyranny, all of the, the Soviet stuff, the Nazi stuff, all of the FBI stuff, all of the, all of the school system... All of this is predicated on institutions, right? The educational institution, the, 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 the collegiate ex institution, the, the institutions. Institutions are gone. There are no unions for graphic designers. They just can't keep up with it. Here's the first time chat. I always try to honor those on, um, on uh, uh, Twitch uh, from uh, Flyin2003. Hey, I like that name. Uh, I think the pandemic merely showed us who the weak ones were. They were ready to... Uh, tip and COVID merely provided the final shove. Yes, actually well said. In fact, flying, you could probably take that even further. It's not even that it broke them or tipped them. It just exposed them. These were people who were always terrified. I did a, a firewall I liked an awful lot called Coerced Cowardice. I think it got 20,000 views over six months, um, which is what 
a guy unboxing a Rode microphone will get in the first 20 minutes. Um, but, uh, yes, I think, I know, I know, they're, they're, they're terrified people, they're cowards. I've mentioned this before, but it bears mentioning again. I saw, it was the kind of thing that made me angry and sad and, and, um, and compassionate and all these things at the same time. This young woman whose face looked like she'd been in a fire. She, she, her, her, her skin was just gone. It was red, cracked, caked, her eyes, and she had had an autoimmune reaction to the vaccine. And she was crying because her life was ruined. You don't come back from that kind of damage. I'm not saying she won't be better, but she's not going to be what she was before. This was, this was a horrific uh, re reaction to this um, vaccine. And, and she said something that just went right through me like a hot poker. She just started crying and said, I don't understand. I did everything that the government told me to do. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, on one hand, I, I, I'm, I'm so sympathetic to that. And on the other hand, I'm saying maybe now you'll start thinking about whether or not you should do everything the government uh, tells you to do. And then I get into uh, the other side of my personality, which is not feeling pity and wants nothing but revenge and saying, well, maybe now, maybe now you'll start to, to start thinking about the people who've been warning about this kind of thing. Maybe you won't consider us automatically to be Nazis now that you now that you've got some real evidence that maybe something we were talking about wasn't, in fact, just us being stupid and, and, and you know, and, and being anti-science. Um, Eric Blake here says in the comment section uh, at Twitch, uh, Bill, I got a sad story. Oh, good. Uh, there were a lot of people who came to my church on a regular basis before the pandemic and still haven't come back yet in Florida, mind you. Uh, I suspect that's because... Um, I don't know what that's because. I think it's because they realize that the people who are there without masks must be Trump supporters. I think that must be it. I think I think that that's what I think it is. I think for for people for for the progressives who are wearing masks, taking the mask off is essentially the same thing as putting a MAGA hat on, right? It means that the other side was right. It means that the other side was uh, was was correct this whole time, you know. And I suspect that overwhelms whatever spiritual uh, feelings or, or community feelings they might have. It's, it's inconceivable to them uh, to admit that they might have been wrong about this. So they'd rather not go to church and keep the masks on than go to church where nobody's wearing masks because this thing is over. And that means that you've got to be a, a conservative. Right? Um, a broke college student here says, he's got a couple here. I'm going to get back to these questions, so I thought I'd make this a short show, but we're already almost two hours in, so so much for that. Um, but this, but he often has great insights because he's one of these younger guys. Regarding your thoughts on the ignorance of Gen Z, I no doubt believe it's true that many young people are criminally miseducated, but I wonder if there is bias sampling. You can find many a willful fool, but hopefully there are a great many. They are greatly outnumbered by their wiser and better peers. I'm finishing up a final semester of college to be employed as an actuary. I'll become a member then. Hold me to it. You're very kind. I don't have to hold you to anything. You're, you're, we put this show out for everybody, and you've been contributing some really great stuff. Also, if you would like, if you would like a report from a university, I'd be happy to provide one to justify going to college. Employers require it, and I made out like a bandit. Yes, there's no question about that, but those days are coming to an end. 
dual credit in high school got me down to only two and a half years in university and a substantial amount of scholarships made the cost benefit analysis better. Well, God bless you, broke college student. Uh, you're not going to be broke for long. That's the first thing I'll have to say about you. Um, and I'm really delighted and pleased and honored that you're uh, part of this audience. Uh, now, I did see something that really surprised me in a very positive way. I saw uh, uh, somebody asked a bunch of questions of college kids, Harvard kids, in fact. And if they got all five of them right, uh, they would win an iPhone. And these were really, really tough questions, really tough questions. Uh, which president, not, not can you name a U.S. president, but which president served the uh, shortest time in office? Um, what is the hottest planet in the solar system? Not name a planet, right? Can you name a planet? What's a planet? What's the hottest planet in our solar system? And the reason that's an interesting question is because it's an anti-intuitive question. Um, there was a math question that I failed. It was one of those math series things, you know, this number, this number, this number, this number, this number, this number, which one comes next? I've always had problems with those. Uh, as a strange quick aside, uh, I, I bought an app just for killing time. And one of the repeating challenges in these apps is connect the colored dots. So it's a topology thing, right? You, if you connect this and you cut yourself off from this. And for some reason that surprises me, I'm just instantly solving those things. Instantly, just like, oh, okay, we'll go around the outside and this, this guy here, this guy there, and then this one just has to do a little bit. And so that kind of thing I'm real good at. But the, the math sequence thing, uh, I, I wasn't, and I'd actually learned something from watching that video because I remember that prior to getting the answer on this, there was an entire way of looking at things that I hadn't considered. I was just throwing stuff out as irrelevant when it turned out it was not only irrelevant, it was the answer. Anyway, um, so so all of that stuff. Um, so yes, things are looking better. Uh, thanks, Joe. Moving on, um, Justin Whitsett. Uh, Bill, how are you, you old boomer? I'm doing just great. Thank you very much for asking and stay off my lawn. Um, maybe you've talked about this already, but I thought I would ask. Yes, I'm undoubtedly talked about it already. Uh, what is your wife's family opinion about the Russia-Ukraine war? What do you think is going on and what kind, what do they think is going on and what kind of news propaganda are they getting on that side of the conflict? That's a great question. So I have a, um, I have a mother-in-law and a stepdaughter that live in Russia, uh, and they actually live, uh, not terribly far from the conflict. They're, they're not in any danger, and part of my daily routine is trying to reassure my wife and them that they're not in any military danger, because they're not. But they feel it. Uh, so uh, the difference between, uh, in terms of what their opinion about the Ukraine war is, there's a huge difference between my mother-in-law and my stepdaughter. My stepdaughter believes the thing is a catastrophe and that it was an illegal invasion and, and the, the biggest moral mistake, not to mention practical mistake, that she's ever seen and, and, and probably the biggest one since the uh, invention of Bolshevism. My mother-in-law, on the other hand, uh, is much, much more uh, sympathetic to the Russian cause because uh, she grew up during the Soviet era, most of her life was, well, certainly two-thirds of her life was during the Soviet era, and the state-sponsored news agency is something she grew up with. Um, Putin is, is 
calling this an invasion of the of the of the motherland. And now that he's done this so-called referendum and immediately just declared these uh, Ukrainian provinces to be Russian territory, he did that for two reasons. The propaganda reason is now he can say that they are invading Russian territory because the people have essentially voted for this, you know, seven, eight months after the invasion. And if I understand the situation correctly, he is not allowed to... Um, uh, he's not allowed to deploy reservists outside of Russia. So by declaring this Russia, now you can put 300,000 kids there. Um, the uh, the um, You know, Jordan Peterson says you're naive, naive if you think Russia's going to lose this war. And uh, Jordan Peterson's a smart guy. And I certainly was over-optimistic. I was just, no, I wasn't over-optimistic. I was wrong. I didn't think Putin would su survive the summer. Uh, so I was wrong about that. And, um, and he may be right about this too. Um, but the, when you have to lie to your troops, tell them that they're going for exercises on the Crimea and then put them into uh, this conflict... And, and I've heard a lot of intercepted calls from the Russian soldiers back home. Morale is the most important thing in war. It's more important than strategy, certainly, or tactics. More important even than supply, which is the next more important thing. Morale is everything. If, if they, the, you, whatever, you know, I, I, I don't, I know there are people that support the Russian position on this. I can't understand that, but that's okay. We can agree to disagree about that, but certainly, uh, if you have to lie to your troops about where you're deploying them, then you're not starting off on the strongest foot. And morale in, in Russia is, the Russian uh, army morale there is cratered. So if Putin has doubled down and he wants to call up 300,000 reserves and you have lines of people who are doing anything to get out of the country, young men, you know, are fleeing the country, uh, then that's... Um, That's not going to go well when you're fighting people who are, you know, defending their country. Uh, so, I mean, obviously with the last two, three weeks, Russia, uh, Ukraine has had a tremendous amount of momentum. And like in most football games, or many anyway, that, that momentum can shift about as quickly as, as possible. But when I try to think about a shift in momentum towards the Russians, all I can think about is they would get a shot of... Um, of what the Russians have always done, which is throw men at the problem. But throwing men at the problem doesn't seem to have worked in the first place, and I don't think it's going to help them now. Uh, not only are they, would they have to throw a lot of men at the problem, they'd also, you'd have to train these men. Most of the people doing the training are already dead. And furthermore, the amount of equipment that Russia lost, prime equipment in the in the in the war so far cannot be replaced. All of their smart munitions are gone. You know, the cream of their air force is gone. Their armor is not only gone, a lot of their armor is gone over to the Ukrainians. The, there are times when, um, times, the revolution in military affairs, when some new technology appears that, you know, that changes warfare. A great example of that is the rifled bullet, right? If you've got a musket, 
your effective range is probably 20 to 50 yards maximum. With a rifle, your effective range is four to five, 600 yards. And that changes the way everything is done. And no more lining guys up in a straight line and having them stand there in their red coats and all fire at the same time. Once you have rifled bullets, that is obsolete. And whether you realize it or not, things are changed. Now it's time to camouflage guys and hide them behind bushes. Um, and and we've seen this here. And, 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 and I've said and people have said, well, the game changer is the Javelin missile, the anti-tank missile, or the anti-aircraft missile, man-carried man missiles. And that's a large part of it. But since I've been watching this, that was my reaction, you know, two months into the war. I realize now that the that the revolution of military affairs, uh, the technology that's that's changed warfare is uh, is the is the drone, the personal drone, just the off-the-shelf drone. It's technologically interesting to watch them dropping mortar shells down the hatches of tanks and everything, but that's not really what the what the the this what the drone does. The drone. The drone allows indirect fire to be lethally accurate. That's what the drones do. It's really just that simple. Um, high Mars is great, but regular artillery mess up your day if you can put the rounds on the target. And ever since there's been indirect fire artillery, long-range artillery, World War I, the entire idea was to see where the shots are landing so that you can dial them in. The reason you had airplanes in, in World War I was you had airplanes because they could get behind the lines and get reconnaissance of positions and fly back pictures. And, and the reason you had fighter airplanes was to shoot down the reconnaissance airplanes. Balloons were great because a balloon, you could call, the, you could call in the corrections in real time on a telephone. And because they were so valuable, they were the best defended targets surrounded by anti-aircraft machine guns and fighter aircraft. That's why they were so damn important to, for the other guys to shoot down. The only reason there was air power in World War I was to, was to look at the other guy, and the reason you had fighter aircraft was to blind the other guy. It's that simple. So the artillery could do the work. Um, now artillery's gotten a lot more accurate, but that doesn't help if you don't know where people are. Um, and the, this off-the-shelf $200 drone is the is the ultimate artillery spotter. It's essentially invisible, it's instantaneous, and it's inexpensive and reliable. And like I say, it's virtually impossible to detect, let alone shoot down. I know they're making some efforts of it, but it doesn't matter. All of a sudden now, Ukraine has the ability to, to know where enemy targets are, individual targets, to the inch. I mean, to the inch. And that's what's changed the game. It's allowed, it's allowed the Ukrainians to, to know where the armor is so they can go at them with their anti-tank weapons. It's allowed the artillery to, to decimate formations when they, when they wouldn't even know what road they're on, let alone what mile marker they're on. I've seen it again and again and again in this thing. I've just seen these drones just standing there and they're just floating there and they're just like saying, you know, they're just correcting this stuff in and it's like direct hits, direct hit, direct hit, direct hits, like they're guided munitions. And, you know, essentially that's what they are. What the drone has done is it's turned the artillery shell into, into guided munitions. The shell's not any different, but when you can get instantaneous feedback and correction, 
and you've got accurate artillery pieces, even though they won't know what they're shooting at until they until they see it. So that's that's been the the game changer is is the reconnaissance advantage. The reconnaissance advantage is nobody ever talks about reconnaissance. Reconnaissance, I would say probably if you know honestly now that I think about it, reconnaissance and morale are right up here. Supply is a close second. These are nobody talks about this strategy and tanks and protect. No, no, war is actually pretty simple stuff when this comes down to this kind of thing. You guys have to be willing to fight. Number one, you got to give them weapons and, and food. Number two, and and ammo. And and most importantly, you got to know where the bad guys are. And if you and if you know where they are modern lethality of weapons and I by modern I mean 100 year old artillery 1912 1914 big guns with recoil mechanisms those are the killers those are the ones that do the what the number of casualties in World War one were due to artillery but it was something like 70 80 percent of the total deaths was combat deaths was artillery right so when you can you can put rounds on individual positions even digging trenches doesn't help you Watching those mortar rounds or rocket, I think they might be RPG uh, warheads or something, watching them drop these things into a sunroof or into an open hatch on a tank or, 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 you know, much more tragically, it's just hard to watch just because it's, if you have any humanity at all, watching them drop rounds into a trench. Trench is a great defense, man. You know, if you've got, if you've got artillery fire that's coming in this way, the chance of this thing hitting a direct hit is low that's why there were so many trenches in world war ii i mean world war one and that's why the foxhole was a uh, you know soldier's best friend you get under the earth you, you've gone a long way to protect yourself but when these things come directly down on you and when and when a miss is corrected instantly your number advantage your technology advantage all that stuff goes away and it doesn't and it doesn't work the other way that's not to say that, the, the, first of all, the Russians don't seem to have the kind of uh, drones that the Ukrainians have, but even if they did, reconnaissance favors the defender because it allows the defender, who's essentially static, to hit moving targets, which are the incoming armor and, and so on. So uh, anyway, uh, the situation is starting to seep in. There are, the situation in Russia appears to be the, the report on the news, and it matches up with my personal experience, is that younger people who are familiar with the internet are completely against it and mortified by it and ashamed, not only terrified of it, but ashamed of it. And then older people whose information comes from state-sponsored TV are very, very different. And I had uh, really significantly underestimated the, the, the degree of that support. But look, you're getting at the point now where you can't cover up things like all of the military-aged men in your city hitting the highway. And, um, and so my perception of it is, among my, uh, my two relatives that are living in, in Russia right now, is that it is changing uh, and becoming less... Um, less uh that the that the overall the russian population that feels like this is a uh, uh like a defensive war which is what they were sold as they essentially were, were were told that it that the ukraine was was 
staging ground for NATO's invasion of uh, uh, of Russia. And that position seems to be weakening only because the casualties are mounting and the and 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 it's it's a strange war, you know. The the Civil War was the first war that had machine guns, first war that had balloons and air. First war really to use uh, railroads. It was first war that had a submarine. Or a lot of a lot of really. Uh, you know, first war that significantly used rifled uh, mini balls and so on. Um, and this war has that kind of reconnaissance. And this war also has, to my astonishment, really, it's really quite astonishing. It's the first war that I'm aware of where a soldier can call home from his trench, you know. And we're, I'm seeing a lot of intercepted calls. Now, I understand that the intercepted calls that I'm listening to are coming from Ukrainian uh, intelligence and, and therefore function as Ukrainian propaganda, but that doesn't negate them, and I don't think they're fake. They certainly don't seem fake. Um, and so, look, it doesn't matter how strong your army is. It doesn't matter how well-supplied you are. It doesn't matter even if your cause is just or not. If your guys in the army, all they want to do is run, you're going to lose that war. If that's all there is to it. And if you're going to send large numbers of people that didn't want to be there when the first group of people went, then it's just going to collapse uh, even faster. Um, so now I did hear, like I said at the beginning of the show, I, I don't spend much time at all listening to conservative commentators. I got I, I need to get my mind off of things. I don't want to be seen as, you know, copying anybody or parroting anything, but uh, I did hear Tucker Carlson make the case that the Biden administration has put Putin into a position where he either wins or or is carried out of the Kremlin horizontally. And I only listened to a little bit of it, but it seemed genuinely insane uh, foreign policy on the part of the United States. Uh, and that makes the whole... Um, the Ukrainians are essentially a tool of of uh, of, of NATO or American uh, power. It puts a little puts a little uh, ground under that position. Uh, you know, my biggest lesson about this, uh, uh, Justin, is um, is a realization. And this doesn't just apply to Putin, and it doesn't just apply to Stalin or Hitler, too. It also applies to Joe Biden and, 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 and all of these people. It, it, it connects to the work I've been doing on the Soviet terrorist state. It connects to Iraq. It connects to everything. It's amazing how much human misery has been caused by the ego of individual humans. It's just, it is the human tragedy. This is not a situation where the people of Russia decided to go to war with the people of Ukraine. And it almost never is that, right? I remember those, I remember the Iraqis surrendering in Gulf One and, and realizing, you know, how many of these people got killed because of Saddam Effin Hussein, right? How many people died because of Joseph Effin Stalin or Adolf Effin Hitler or Vladimir Effin Putin or whatever else you want to include? You want to include some American presidents in there? I would generally disagree because all of the 
conflicts since the end of World War II have been responses to, to, to socialist aggression. But even if you want to put American president's name in there, I don't care. Uh, certainly all of the power grabs by Barack F. and Obama, all of this stuff is from that defective human gene about needing to control people, right? I there, the, the narcissism and the egocentric, just, it's just the, this, this idea that, you know, um, these human beings are tools for my aggrandizement. Yeah, Woodrow Wilson and FDR, absolutely. I will say that Woodrow Wilson and FDR did not start World War One or World War Two, but there's no question that what they domestically was just them. Was just this is this is the whole this like look this whole Ukrainian war is a result of elitism, right? It's like this Vladimir Putin and and his cronies decided that they wanted something, so now everybody is going to pay for it, and so did Stalin, and so did everybody else. You know, it's just that's that's it's it's and this this not a modern thing, you know. The Hundred Years' War was a family quarrel. It was a it was a little you know pissing contest, and 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 as far back in history as you go, you just see you know even even you think about like the the, the Spartans at Thermopylae, right? It's like okay, so they lost uh, you know three hundred Spartans and a number of the uh, of uh, you know Thespians as well, and and a number of other people there, and then all the Persians that died and stuff. It's because of it's because of Xerxes, and Darius and. And this diseased ego that they have, and Hillary Clinton, the whole war in Libya, the whole the, just the diseased, the diseased, sick, freaking psychopathical desire to to control things, and and this is the this is it's not a problem, it's the problem. Is this is this this mania for telling other people what to do? Uh, let me see what my, uh, we're going to go to page two here. We're not. Well, this doesn't look good for the Facebook people, but it does look good for Billy, who, who said he'd be trying to, told his wife he'd try to do a short show tonight. It, he'll be lucky if we get this thing under three hours, but in any event. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to move on here. Uh, from Cody Fett, um, Bill, have you gotten around to watching any videos by Freedom Alternative? Uh, I have not particularly the travel blogs. blogs. Uh, there's nothing quite so invigorating as seeing how American values have been transplanted around the world and made everyone's lives better. In their travel log about Albania, they showed how things like freedom of speech and free markets turned literally the worst country on earth into one of the greatest nations on the planet in just a quarter century. Less if you discount the early stumbling. There are other stories like that too on their channel. To put this in the form of a question though, doesn't it seem to be the case that the twin narratives in conservative circles here in America, that every step made by leftism is irreversible and that America is the only country with any freedom are all kind of unhelpful for morale? That's a fantastic question. Um, let me deal with the irreversible thing first. It feels irreversible. It, it just does. And as I've said, now don't, don't tune out yet. You need to stay with me on this one. Rust never sleeps. The weeds always grow. You cannot win against entropy. You have to push the boulder up the hill every day, and that's and that is as close to victory as you get. Is perpetual effort against entropy. It is easier to let something fall apart than it is to build something. And the people who are trying to pay you to have things fall apart have a much easier job than the people who are trying to convince you to work your tail off. You can look at all of this, all the collapse of civilization, all of it is, is a fight against entropy. 
and um, entropy is not just a bad idea, it's the law. So there are forces that are not just political forces, there are laws of physics that favors the left. It is much easier to be told what to do than to figure out what to do. It's easier to tax a company than it is to run a company. All of this stuff is entropy in action. And the United States model is predicated on enough reward built into the system to generate the hard work necessary to fight the entropy. That's why we're successful. We were the first society to recognize that if you could, if you could let people keep the fruits of their labor, they could increase the amount of work that they did to the point where they would actually begin to, they would actually begin to outwork entropy. The reason that that you could go essentially anywhere in the world that's not the West, and America are the group of people that self-selected themselves from the West. The West were the people that really had this entire idea of reason and, and, and delayed gratification, all the rest of the things you have to do when if you if you don't plan ahead, you're gonna starve. Um, because it's cold. So so you had that and you had the, the 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 this entire idea of reason and and law and stuff in Europe and then and then you had people self-select from all over Europe and then eventually all around the world saying you guys are on the right idea but you're not going fast enough so they come here. So here we are we're like this this freedom creature. Uh, and we have to we have to fight this uh, this entropy. So The question is, uh, do you think that we're the um, only country with any freedom at all and that leftism is irreversible? Leftism is not irreversible. I come back to the same example every time. Whenever I feel this despair and this, and this just sense of, of loss and, 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 and anger and, and resignation, I come back to the same example every time, and every time I think about it, it just pulls me right out of it. I have seen automobiles and aircraft that were made in the 1930s or 40s that not only look like they came out of the factory today, but in both cases, they were rusting hulks. There was nothing but rusting hulks. I have seen people take a, a, a Ford that has sat in a barn for 60 years. The rubber has disintegrated and gone back to the earth. The leather has completely fallen apart. The only thing that's essentially left is the steel chassis, right? The steel chassis and, and, and much more importantly, the blueprint. The blueprint. The blueprint survives and the, and the, and there's still enough of that chassis left. So I have seen people take, and then to buy them, people will pay them to cart, to cart a, uh, uh, a, a, you know, a, a junk car out of a backyard someplace. And these people take these things home. And the first thing they do is they take off everything that can't be saved and they throw that away, but they have the plans. And this is the part that matters. So then they get on the, on the chassis and they start taken off the rust and they just start just sometimes with a toothbrush and they just get in there and get all the corrosion off of it. And they put a powder coat on there or something. So that doesn't get any worse. Turns out that steel chassis is actually in pretty good shape, pretty good shape, strong. All the parts that have, that have completely decayed 
they replace with a with a religious level of devotion to the original blueprints. They could just put any tires on this car, but they don't. They put tires on that on that 1931 Ford that were the original tires on that 1931 Ford, even if they have to make them themselves, right? So they so they take a car that was brand new and was and was reduced to a rat's nest of rust and 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 bird dung and all the rest of it and restored it to the way it looked when it came out of the factory and and they have made it better because they've put seat belts in there or maybe they put a nicer radio or they they, they they don't have to, but almost always the things that they put in are better than the things that were there originally. They don't put LED headlights on the things, but the electrical system that they put in is much better than the electrical system that, that was there when the car was there, if only because of the fact that the hidden wires are not shielded in cloth, they're shielded in, in plastic and rubber. So again and again and again, I've seen aircraft that were beautiful when they were made reduced to... In fact, I have to show you. I just have to show you because you, you really doesn't... I can't make the point until I show you. I'm, see, I'm looking for a specific example here. Those of you who think that the damage is irreversible, I need to show you something. Perfect. We'll show you three pictures. And I knew exactly where to go for this. I need one more. Give me one second. I want photographs. I don't want art. It's important I get photographs. Okay. Yeah, this will work. All right, so three photos for you. Is the destruction of this country irreversible? Is leftism irreversible? I'll give you my answer. Here's um, pictures worth a thousand words, so here's 3,000 words for you. Here's the first picture. This is the P-38 Lightning. It's made by Lockheed. It was called the, the, the Fork-Tailed Devil. It was a very effective fighter. It wasn't, didn't have the glamour of the the P-51 Mustang, but it was but it was a monster and everybody feared it. And that's what the P-38 uh, Lightning looked like fresh out of the factory, which would happen to be in Burbank, by the way. This is a picture of a P-38, an individual P-38 that looked like this one, looked brand new, came out of the factory brand new, like all other brand new things. And this P-38 is called uh, Glacier Girl. That wasn't its original name. The reason they called this P-38 Glacier Girl is because they found it under a glacier. Somebody had crash-landed the thing uh, somewhere, I forget where, Greenland or something like that, and the snows melted, and then they uh, formed again, and, and this P-38 was under the ice for 50 or 60 years. So let's just be sure we're all on exactly the same uh, page here. This is what America looked like before the left got a hold of it, and this is what America looks like now that the left is doing what they do. 
But you can see that Glacier Girl here is surrounded by guys with ropes because it turns out there were patriots who loved this country and they loved the P-38 the way that we love America. So they took this thing out of here and they put all of their time and money and effort into it, volunteered. They didn't use any state money or anything. They, they were, it was a cooperation of, of aviation lovers and patriots and they spent an enormous amount of time and work. And I mean an enormous amount of time and work. And they took this, this is an actual photograph, they took this and here's what it looks like today. This is Glacier Girl today. Now, there's a lot of JPEG compression in there, which I actually need to find another copy of because it's the details that matter. Give me a second here. Uh, yeah, sorry, I should have taken this one. I'll just bring in a higher risk copy because you really do need to see the details. So, uh, this is a little better. Here's a... Uh, Here's Glacier Girl today. Okay, now, let's do it one more time, just for fun, because this point needs to be said so that you don't lose faith the way that they want you to lose faith. I'll just go through this whole thing again, just because this point needs to be hammered home. This is a brand new P-38 Lightning, probably built in the early 40s in Burbank, California. This is a P-38 Lightning that was ditched during World War II and then spent 50 years under the ice. It is essentially nothing but corroded aluminum and rusted steel. But the pattern is still there. The spars and the main fuselage are still there. And most importantly, we still have the blueprints for the P-38. So you haul this thing out of the ice with a crane. You take it to a workshop. You get people who love and admire this thing. And, and with incredible care, they take all of the rust off of this thing. If an aluminum panel is so badly corroded that it cannot be saved, and I think pretty much all of these were of that same thing. You'd pop the rivets off of this aluminum panel, you'd bash it out till it was flat, you'd get the same grade aluminum that they used before, you'd cut the same pattern out, you'd rivet it in the same place and you'd put it back on and you, it's entirely possible that the final product, which is uh, this, it's entirely possible that none of the skin you see, in fact, it's entirely possible that none of the parts you see are original to Glacier Girl. So the question is, is that a P-38 or not? And the answer is, you're damn right it is. Because the same argument applies to, the, to us as well. Whether or not there are any original parts on that P-38, that is a brand new P-38, which has, by the way, inside it somewhere, I guarantee you, even if it's carried on the lap, somewhere in there is a GPS uh, navigation system that's going to get that plane within, within a foot or two of where it wants to be, and that's nothing like what the plane had originally. It is absolutely, absolutely as beautiful as it was. And 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 Resort Doug, I'm sorry, and Dave Dave Wellman nailed it. He got it exactly. The soul still remains. The soul of that piece of aluminum and steel there is a P-38, and it has been restored to that from this, which was allowed to decay from that. And if it turns out that none of those parts are original, that all of the aluminum had been had been carefully peeled off and reproduced, and then even the, 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 even the interior was reproduced, it doesn't matter. It's still a P-38 because I'm still Bill Whittle, and none of these cells are the same cells that I had when I was born. None of them. Right? We constantly, our bodies are constantly being regenerated. None of us have the same cells that we had when we were born. Now, certainly, since skin cells, those things just change in a matter of weeks. You're, 
Your fingernails grow and you clip them off, but you still have fingernails. You have all of this stuff. You are not the material. You're the pattern. You're not the cells. You're the pattern. And the pattern of the P38, we still have. And we have the pattern for the United States, too. So it's not a question of, gee, my God, it's, it's, it's irretrievably ruined. It's a question of, are we willing to do the work necessary to reverse the entropy and get this thing back into shape? And what you find about that is it gets much, much, much easier the more people you have. It is honest to God when you come right down to it, it is just a simple question of man hours. Here, look, I found a new picture. Uh, sorry. Just, uh, it's a good picture because it, uh, stop that, just stop, just stop doing that. Um, you bastard. Hang on. Uh, where, here it is. Oh, come on. I'm going to show it to you anyway because it's worth it. Uh, I may have to screen grab this, but I don't mind about that either. Uh, how about you? Okay, I showed you that one picture. Here you go. Do it. Yep. Same same airplane. This is Glacier Girl. So, next time you wake up tomorrow and you think back about that P thirty one P thirty eight that we used to have, and you look out the window and you see that this is what's left of it. You're right. You're right. This is what's left of it. Now, the question is, is it gone? Is it destroyed? Simple answer for that is yes or no, depending on the decision that you make. Yes or no. And I might point out that to go from this uh, to this, hang on. The more people that worked on it, the faster it went, but it did not take millions of people to do this. It didn't take hundreds of people to do this. It took scores of people, maybe dozens of people to do this. So it's not even like, hey, we don't have the majority of the population or not enough people still believe in it. That's not relevant. It's what's relevant is what is the degree of passion and commitment. How much do you believe in this? How much do you believe in it? Here's the cockpit. Can't make this point often enough. I need to hear this myself more than, than anybody sometimes. Here's what the inside of Glacier Girl looked like when they pulled her out of the ice. Uh, let's see, I have an interior shot of it today anywhere. This would be the last one just for fun. And by the way, it's not just Glacier Girl. There's, there's hundreds of airplanes and thousands of cars that this, that this process goes through. It's a question of, of willpower. It's just, it's like that my favorite line in Apollo 13 is at the very beginning when um, he's looking up at the, at the moon, they just watched the landing of Neil Armstrong and Lovell's out there watching, you know, he's drunk on the lawn chair and he's looking up at the moon and he says, so, well, you know, we landed on the moon. He says, wasn't anything particularly magical about it. We just decided to go. And that line went 
right through me um, because it's the because it's the point. We just decided to go. Um, I don't know if this is uh, actually Glacier Girl, but I can guarantee you that the inside of Glacier Girl looks like this now. Again, this is a P-38 cockpit. I don't know if it's Glacier Girl's, but I guarantee you that the interior of Glacier Girl now looks like, looks like this. Brand new. Brand new. So yes, the country's in deep trouble. And yes, all this stuff is being destroyed. And yes, there's a lot of wreckage out there. So the question is, is it, is it gone forever? Is the future gone? And the answer is yes or no, depending on what you decide uh, in the moment. So maybe that's why we do shows like this here. Um, yes, somebody have asked uh, about getting, in fact, I need to do this. Apparently, just tapping on the table creates a tremendous amount of noise because this thing's on the thing. I've got a mic stand, and Scott mentioned it to me, and as usual, I forgot. So I'm going to write that one down, too. Uh, and I think I can get rid of that. I have no sense of it. Um, I have no idea I'm making those kind of noises, but apparently it's, like you said, loudest thing. All right. Uh, let's see. What else we got? Uh, Bill, I have heard many people concerned that the United States might be behind the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines and that in doing so, we may be pushing closer to nuclear war. Back in July, when America was offering to increase uh, liquid national gas exports to Europe, and then shortly thereafter, a mysterious explosion crippled the huge Freeport LNG export facility in Texas. I don't recall anyone suggesting that the Russians were pushing us to nuclear retaliation or that they were declaring war on the EU by denying them American uh, liquefied nuclear, uh, uh, natural gas ahead of winter. When the Russians commit sabotage against our civilian infrastructure, wouldn't it be engaging in tit-for-tat retaliation against their civilian infrastructure back actually reducing the chances of an all-out war? Wouldn't allowing Russian sabotage to go unanswered encourage more aggressive action by the Russian leadership against us in the future? Uh, P.S. With regard to you not wanting the headache of device and password security, this is Chris Taylor, legal insurance, HR precautions, etc. Don't you think every engineer, scientist, and technician working on every military jet, nuclear submarine, missile, physics package, etc. were also frequently annoyed that they had to deal with constant, unforgiving, but essential security precautions? Everybody wants to be a cold warrior until it is time to do Cold War stuff. Uh, I would agree with you on this, Chris, but I would also point out that if you're working on a uh, on a defense program for the Pentagon, you're not working for that program all by yourself. Uh, that would be the thing that I would say uh, is the m main problem here. Yes, all of these facilities have all of these precautions that you put in place, but there's not one guy who's um, who's doing the calculations on the board and then go into the machine shop and drill in the holes and then constructing the bomb and then wiring the bomb, then go into the, do the computer math, and then he's not cleaning up the the uh, you know the, the 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 garbage pails at night and he's not parking the cars either. So they've got a staff for that. I don't mean to be quite so um, uh, pissy about it, but it's not that I'm unaware of the problem. It's 
that I'm very limited in what I can do about the problem right now. So that's why. It's not a question of not taking it serious, and I'm pretty sure it's not a question of laziness. It's just a question of capability. Um, Road Rider, uh, the question first. Bill, aren't you a little hard on yourself about your reach considering how many people have seen, watched, and viewed your content over the years? Don't jump in with a comment. Just keep reading. Okay. I just got done looking for one of your videos. Look through your site, PJ Town Hall Archives, and the unlisted shows on YouTube. You've humbly said you've had millions of views. In a time or two, I'd kind of rolls my eyes and scoff just a little. After doing that thorough search of all your vids and seeing how many views just on YouTube your videos have gotten, it's clearly in the tens, in the millions and tens of millions. That's not the same hundred people watching each show a million times. You've been seen by and influenced hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people of the years, over the years. I'm not saying quit, give up, move to a cabin at Joshua Tree Monument. Just saying to take a moment to think about the influence you have had, that's all. How else would I have known the phrase, we're going to whip those Marxists out of their boots, out of their boots? That and a thousand other Bill Little phrases that have helped me and my family through these crazy years. Road Rider, thank you for that. I needed that very badly. Um, and just to clarify, because uh, sometimes, you know, when you hear enough whining and crying and complaining about things, it can get to be kind of generic. And I've been doing a lot of that lately. The things that are eating me alive are not a lack of um, awareness of, uh, of, of reach. They're, um, they're all concerned with trend lines. They're all concerned with the relative positions. Uh, that's the stuff that, um, that, that drags me down. Uh, I've heard enough from enough members to realize that I'm one of those very, very, very uh, fortunate people in life who've managed to make a positive, um, concrete positive impact in the world. And, and no one can take that away from me. And, I, and when the end of the day comes, I'm, I'm reminded of that. The, the thing that gets me so emotional about it, and frankly, uh, Road Rider, it's comments like this that really, really, really help me. Uh, the thing that, that gets me so torqued is that every day that goes by, we need these kind of messages more and more, and I'm tired of watching uh, this influence recede down the railroad tracks. It's, it's like the darker it gets, the more I want to get in the game. And, and that's not what the trend lines are doing. It's been um, a combination of, of things like intention. There's no question in my mind at all, none, none, because I've heard this from so many people, including pop culture people who just, who just that's a great line, by the way, uh, Tiki Rocket said, can't you just be whelmed? Instead of overwhelmed, I guess suppose I could dial it back to whelmed. Uh, there's no question that a lot of this has to do with intentional um, uh, tampering by people who who have no business tampering with any of this stuff. And we need to get into the whole YouTube algorithm things again. It's not just me. It's a lot of guys and a lot of pop culture channels and all the rest of it. But the thing I've noticed is that um, is that these tech people, especially, are masters of psychology. Not because they're particularly smart, but because they have so much data to chew on. For example, there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, look, 
this is an important thing to understand. Um, I know that pretty much everything I say is is being monitored and analyzed. I know that if I put in a, the, the, just the tiniest clip of a TV show, YouTube will instantly flag that video. I mean, the tiniest little clip. That means that the entire show is being scanned by algorithms and looking for things that match their database. So I have no doubt whatsoever that big tech is is on some level analyzing everything I say on uh, the Stratosphere Lounge. It doesn't mean that there's a guy in a room someplace with a headphone on listening to what I say with a little notebook, right? This is the thing. We're all being spied on, and it's nothing personal. They're not interested in what I say. They are very interested in what the reaction is to what I say, and the reaction is to the keywords I use. I, I just... I may be wrong about this, but I feel it's an important thing to understand. They're not out to get me. They're out to get the message. And, and because they can process so much data and they have so much granularity, it's become clear to them just through me complaining about things and not just me, everybody else. Every time I talk to Zoe on the air about it, whatever. Every time Zoe sends an email about it to somebody, it's clear to me that they have learned quite a long time ago that the best way to demoralize people is to not shut them off. It's to shut them, not even to shut them down. It's it's not to turn them off. It's to, it's to lower them to the point where they can tell that they're still out there, but that they no longer have any uh, reach, which essentially means no longer any impact, which essentially means no longer any purpose, right? That's it. We, the people that do this kind of messaging, whether it's political messaging, comic book messaging, whatever, they do it because they got something to say. And if nobody's listening, then it doesn't take long for you to realize that this is a, a, a waste of time. Um, and this is the thing that's that's um, this is the, the 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 monkey that's on my back is watching this process happen, and trying to figure out the best way to fight it. Now, one way to do it would be to do a, a to do a firewall every week. It wouldn't it wouldn't work. And the reason it wouldn't work is cuz they take an awful lot of work and if those things continue to get the, the 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 drop in in views that they continue to get, then it's just it's just what's the word? It's too, it's too obvious, it's too obvious a target for them, right? The, 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 the answer to this problem is one of two things. I really believe this. One answer is to, is to join an organization that has the marketing reach to guarantee like a minimum exposure, Daily Wire, Blaze, Prager, uh, you know, a couple of others, right? Join that team and and look, that's the, that's the the pattern. Andrew Claven used to work with me at PJTV, and and uh, Steve Crowder used to work with me at PJTV, and 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 Steve Green had his own blog, and Scott Ott had his own blog, and we were all out there kind of as individuals. And as this thing has happened over the course of what, fourteen years now, I guess, of making videos. And as these 
control freaks have continued to dial down the message, the alternatives disappear. Streaming, I know I'm changing metaphors here, streaming video has killed small movies. It may have killed all movies, but it's definitely killed small to medium movies. Nobody goes to a theater now to see a little movie. They might still go to the theater to see a blockbuster because of the big screen and the audience thing and stuff. That vote isn't in yet, but nevertheless, nobody joins, nobody goes to see a movie that you can just turn on on Netflix and watch on your widescreen TV and have a perfectly fine experience with it. So the whole market for making a small film and releasing it through theaters, that that's just not there anymore. It's gone. Technology has taken that off. So now, um, now the question is, okay, so what do, what, what do we do in the new market? Um, uh, Flying says, could you join Blaze or Daily Wire or so on? I, I suppose I could. Um, I, had, uh, I had discussions about joining Daily Wire, and Daily Wire wanted me to do um, historical stuff pretty much exclusively, and I don't blame them. They're a business. They're the best-run business I've ever seen. Uh, Jeremy Mooring has the best business mind of anybody I've ever encountered. I got my Jeremy's razor kit late because I had the wrong address, but when I got it and opened it up, I was just, I was just slack-jawed at how perfectly executed it was, how perfectly executed the quality of the materials, the, the 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 humor that was in the package, the 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 Jeremy's razor thing was was perfectly executed, the commercial was perfectly executed, and the motivation was perfectly executed. So yes, I have, uh, well, I, I am working for Daily Wire. I'm working for them part-time so I can keep uh, this thing going. So the question is, why do I keep this thing going, really? I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. I could shut all this down, uh, uh, move to Tennessee, and, and you know, make a, make a decent living and, and all the rest of it. Um, and there's a couple reasons why I don't want to do that. Uh, and the, the number one reason, by a wide margin, is I, I can't work for Daily Wire and keep the existing membership base. And it just it's that simple. Uh, and um, and so, I have to ask myself: Do I want to give that up in exchange for the reach? And the answer is no. Uh, I don't. Uh, uh, broke college student says this is why I have a problem. I give Daily Wire free advertisement. They don't need free advertisement. They got plenty of advertisement, and they and they know what they're doing. I hope any. I hope I'm crystal clear on this. I, I try to be crystal clear on this. Not only do I not have a problem with Daily Wire, I admire everything they do. I've I've loved working with them, and I love to continue to work with them. And they have basically kept this thing afloat. I mean, the members have kept this thing afloat, but. But when, when the thing gets just soggy enough for, like, you know, I get a little lift, it's, it's daily wire that keeps us going here. Um, so now Bart's Treasure says you should get YouTube viewers onto an email list. Now, this is the kind of solution would actually work. I mean, I, you got to know something's wrong when you put out a video and the video gets 4,000 views and you look at your subscriber number and on YouTube it says 190,000 people have clicked up, clicked a button saying, send me Bill Whittle stuff, 190,000 people. And, and it gets seen by 4,000 people. This is one of the things that they did with the whole Bell thing, right? What they realized was, hey, a lot of these, before, they, before Google took the part about don't be evil out of their mission plan and said, you know what, actually 
we've changed our business model, we're going to be evil. Why else would you take don't be evil out of your mission statement? Because they did. That's a fact. So somewhere around the time that Google took out don't be evil and purchased YouTube and they started to get evil, they realized that, oh, my God, before we came in and started uh, trying to control the culture, a lot of these conservatives had large numbers of subscribers back when we were running an honest business. So what they did was they basically uh, they basically made the subscription subscription button obsolete by adding the bell. The subscription button, when you subscribe, the 190,000 people that pressed that button, pressed that button because they wanted to hear what I had to say. And they didn't like that. So what they did was they said that even though you're subscribed to Bill Whittle, we're not going to send you his videos. We're not going to put them in front of you like you asked for unless you go back and resubscribe and hit the bell. And that's how they got away with it. And no matter how many times we ask people to hit the bell, they know they know that it's going to be a percent or two, right? And and nobody knows what the numbers are, whether the numbers are true or not. I had a discussion about this uh, yesterday with somebody who has a little bit of insight on these things. Um, and I said, look, I want to know, there's no question that, that, that YouTube's messing around with my audience, right? My question is very, very, very specific question. If I see that this video, whatever video, got 5,000 views, does that mean that 5,000 people viewed it? I'm not asking about whether or not that was influenced by algorithms. I already know the answer to that question. What I want to know is, is that number accurate? And this person said to me that, that, that she had personal experience watching closely and watching her numbers on a particular video go down. In other words, 6,329, and then a few minutes later, 5,914, that they've seen this happen. Um, so that, you know, that helps. Honestly, I think all of my problems in the world, and, and yours as well, because of, because of this effect that this is having on me, if I could get the actual numbers and I found out that these firewalls were doing 200, 300,000 views, like the minimum that they used to be doing, I'd be cranking these things out. And, and I just don't believe that's true. I just think that, that it's been targeted and, um, and, and would have been eliminated, except that eliminating it wouldn't have the same crushing effect as, as, watching people like walk away from it. Uh, so, you know, uh, I haven't gotten any speaking engagement offers since, um, since I did that favor for, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, I went up and did a fundraiser for the uh, Republican candidate for Illinois and result of that was for them to call me a scientific racist and distance themselves from me and my speaking engagements, which used to make up at least half of my income. In 2013, the first 26 weeks of 2013, I went out 23 of those 26 weeks. And since then, nope. Um, uh, Eric Blake says, Bill, we also have to point to the fact that you want your cultural stuff to be seen by people outside the conservative circles, but DW keeps its movies, et cetera, behind a paywall, so it's only the choir that will see them. Yes. So, 
look, I've had offers, or at least not offers, but at the very least I've had uh, feelers for radio, conservative terrestrial radio talk shows since 2011. As a matter of fact, the first person ever talked to me about public speaking wanted me to go on the road with this with this stuff, and that was in 2009. And uh, I, I always say uh, no uh, because... Um, because that is a, that is a, it's an irreversible commitment. My best work lies somewhere else. And, and not only that, the reach of that work is, is orders of magnitude greater. And not only is it a bigger reach, but it's a bigger reach to the people who need it. And, and so I can't, I cannot walk away from that. I could, but I don't, I won't. So here I am, right? Here I am. I'm in a world where, where the stuff that had been successful before is no longer successful, and the stuff that I want to do that will be successful is a bitch of a hill to climb, especially when you've... If I could take a year off, or even a few months off, and I mean off, off, like off, I probably could get from here to there. But I can't. Uh, so I just keep I just keep getting up and doing it and and working on it and and now I just need a little time just to recharge my batteries and run out of energy. But but I can get from here to there. There's no no big gaps in between it. Um, Oh, there you go. See, this is why I'm. This is why uh, I feel like sometimes I just shouldn't get out of bed. Uh, Kettlefish says, "I feel like you're just ranting about the same thing you ranted about last week and the week before." You're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right, and I'm acutely aware of this. I do nothing now but sit and complain about the same thing every time, and it just owns my entire headspace. And that's not interesting, and it's not informative, and it doesn't do any good for anybody. So. I think I'm going to go home uh, like I was saying I would two and a half hours ago. Uh, this show is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com who continue to put up with all this nonsense. Uh, we're very grateful to those people on a continual basis. All of us here are. And um, and I suppose we will see you Monday night uh, for the Stratosphere Studios right here. And um, we'll see you then.